Welcome to the Pocket Realms, a Moral Realms short story phase. Grab your hammer so we can clear a path through the chaos and forge our own narratives in the Age of Sigmar. Your allies through the Realm Gates this episode are... I'm Davey, and I know the handiwork of Aaron's Disciples when I'm stuck in a recording room with it. <laughs> I'm Paul. Do you like talking about yourself? Because my goodness, Hamilcar sure does. He does. Uh, and I'm Aaron, and watch your back, Descartes. Uh, get your mind right, Locke, because there's a new name synonymous with the Age of Enlightenment, and it's Hamilcar. <laughs> hey, everybody. Yeah, wow, yeah. that is a very deep cut. Uh, after my uh, Milton uh, goof from the previous yeah. episode, I'm getting oh, I'm yeah. getting uh, literary. Uh, there's some allusions getting thrown in. Uh, I'm here to play, guys. Uh, I, I, I feel like you've got a sense of humor. <laughs> Uh, how is everybody tell me about yourselves and your lives and your day to day (laughs) doing pretty good excellent how are you Davey I'm doing great getting ready for my uh, son's sixth birthday congratulations kept him alive for six years yeah no small feat that guy has no innate (laughs) danger sense whatever whatever the opposite of a spider sense superpower is that's what he has well maybe it's because of his small feet perhaps um so uh and i'm and i'm fine too blah 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 it's everything's great uh guys i want to i want to hear i don't care about how you are unless it relates to the hobby that we all know and love i want to hear from you guys as to what your last hobby you did was what last game you played was or the last book you read guys I want to hear from Paul. And I maybe before I do, I want to point out, hey, there's a third person on our pocket realms. What? what? This is crazy. Yeah. We're doing guests because Davey and I um, have run out of things to talk about. Just <laughs> the two of us. We need a third leg of a tripo- uh, tripod. So um, we're going to start doing guests. And Paul is our uh, inaugural one. Inaugural I third I lost, I, lost, I lost my words. Um, yeah. Well, that's one way to look at it. Uh, me and Dave are going to have a moment over here and you can. Tri- tricycles follow watch. her less often than bicycles. Paul. Yeah, that's true. That's, that's true. That's true. Um, so, Paul, uh, welcome to the Pocket Realms. Um, oh, thank you. We're expanding this realm. It's getting bigger and bigger. Uh, you tell me last time you did or the last game you played or the last book you read. I am going to pull a rotor. So I got the. Gloomspite gets Battle Force for Christmas, and I'm also getting Ether War and the Caradron Overlord's Battle Tome as well. So, last hobby I did was to go get some new miniatures. You're talking Aaron's language now. Yeah, yeah I'm gonna say step one in hobby: get some hobby. Nice, uh, David. Give me, give me one of the of the options. What you been I, up to? Uh, for a hobby book, I just finished uh, Court of the Blind King a novel about the uh, Ibneth Deepkin, and I enjoyed it quite a lot, and I expected to enjoy it not a lot because I'm not big on elves, but uh, I thought I thought it was an excellent book. Um, I very much enjoyed it. And my non-hobby book I'm reading is Pachinko, which is also very good. Oh, neat. Um, did you just bring that up because that was also a David Geimer book, and you're hoping that if he listens to this, you're going to win points with him? Notice me, Geimer. <laughs> <laughs> Honorable senpai. Um, uh, and for me, I'll do a book too. So I'm all, I'm not 
quite done, but I'm almost done with Dark Harvest by Josh Reynolds. And it is the first horror novel that I've read. We read that short story, um, The Hunt, uh, earlier for these pocket realms. So I figured uh, I liked that well enough that I would then expand into a full-fledged book. And guys, I'm really digging it. Mm. Um, I can't tell if it's just because I like Reynolds. Um, and, and, and get this, as far as I can tell, there's no real references to his other story. So it's pretty self-contained, um, which would normally drive me nuts. But for whatever reason, uh, I'm down for it. So almost, almost done. I feel like I'm just sort of before the the major movement at major major act at the end. Um, but so far, so good. Uh, and hopefully, my opinion doesn't change when I when I finish it. It and better I'm, not. So I'm uh, two chapters into the same book, and I am here for it. I'm really enjoying yeah. it already. So it's eerie, uh, neat. But hey, we're not here to talk about that book or those other books or really any other. Uh, books in general. We're here to talk about one story that I have been looking forward to so very, very much. We're here to talk about Hamilcar, The Age of Enlightenment by David Geimer. Um, uh, a, a short story that was released with uh, the 2019 Advent Calendar story releases. Um, so let's jump, let's jump into the story phase. The story phase. In the story phase, we delve into the stories, characters, creatures, and environments of the Nine Realms. Hamilcar Bear Eater teams up with the Knights of the Heldon Hammer to defend an ancient storm vault. But are they defending what lies within the structure or keeping it imprisoned? Uh, first impression, uh, Knights of the Heldon Hammer. Who wrote this? They're the anvils of the Heldon Hammer. Come on. Uh, but hey, we're here in the story phase. We're going to keep it spoiler-free, even though it's a short story. We'll go through it real quick. Um, first, why are we reading this? The easiest answer in the world because it's Hamilcar and everybody loves Hamilcar, right? Yeah, right. right. As, as soon as this dropped in the advent, uh, Aaron knew what we were doing for the next pocket realm. <laughs> I don't make the rules except when it comes to Hamilcar, and then I definitely make the rules. <laughs> read Hamilcar. Um, but yeah, I also mentioned that it was part of the advent uh release, and although we're recording this a little bit later, um, I, the advent releases are such a sort of a big deal in December that I wanted to make sure that we touched on. Uh, one of them, and oh, lo and behold, it ended up being a Hamilcar story. What, what are the chances? Yeah, and remind people that they're out there. I think over the years of Age of Sigmar fiction, I, there's quite a few from the advent that I've uh, very much enjoyed. Yep, yep, exactly. Um, all right, so let's do our, our, our W's. Let's let's start with the when. When does this story take place? And it's the beauty of sort of having sequels is that it, it matters where they fall in the timeline. So um, when, when is our story taking place, guys? It's explicitly mentioned that it is after the Necroquake slash Arcanum Optimar. Mm -hmm. uh, and the idea of uh, Storm Vaults is a thing that uh, some people know about. It doesn't seem, uh, you know, it's still, it's not uh, general knowledge across all the realms, but... Yeah, enough people are, are familiar with the concept that um, it, it informs sort of decisions that are being made in, in this story. And also, uh, my favorite part is that it, it does take place almost immediately after Champion of the Gods, which for me is one of my favorite novels that we've read so far. So um, it is a, a direct sequel um, to that novel. And if you want to hear more about that, you can obviously check out our story phase uh, where we covered Hamilcar, Champion of the Gods. Good book. Good episode, even, guys, uh, if I do say so myself. Uh, any thoughts on the when, Paul? Uh, it happens right after Forbidden Power, basically. Uh, so it's right. It's. It's not before, it's definitely after, um, but as you're saying, people know that these storm vaults exist, but it's not necessarily everybody who knows, right? So it's got to be somewhere pretty close to that whole storyline uh, when it comes in the box set. Yeah, um, let's let's hop to the where. Where where are we, guys? Um, well, let's, let's put this in a location. Well, I got a question here, actually. Shoot. 
Don't literally shoot. If this is directly after Champion of the Gods, was Champion of the Gods after the Necroquake or before the Necroquake? Ooh, good question. I'm trying to think if there were any illusions. Because I don't believe there were any illusions. And so I think even though it's immediately after, it's like this bridges two different eras, which we haven't had before, right? Because his story in Champion of the Gods, I don't believe there was a ton about anything happening with the 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 Necroquake. And now it's absolutely after the Necroquake. David, any thoughts? I can't remember clearly enough to uh, come down on either side of that. Um, perhaps if we had done any kind of research. Screw that. That's not what Pocket Realms is for. Um, yeah, I'm not <laughs> sure. I wonder, I can't remember if the Necroquake had something to do with like the gnaw holes that they were running through at some point or if it, like, it knocked them loose or not. But I don't, I don't think it did. There was very little death sort of involved in that story. So yep. um, I'm going to fall on the, it was... Uh, it didn't mention it, so it very well could have happened after the fact. It just wasn't alluded to. Is yeah, and if if that's true, then this is the first storyline that covers that, like that transitions between eras. So that's a brand new thing for us. Yeah, that straddles from one end to the other. Yeah, quite, quite possibly. Um, cool, good thought. Uh, now we can talk about talk about the where. Where are we? Uh, where are we dealing with? We are in Gur in the Unchained Lands. Ooh, the Unchained Lands. That sounds. Yep. Uh, ominous and terrifying now, what do we know about the unchained lands uh they appear on no map there's there's kind of a fun quote here uh where he says something to the effect of like uh nobody really knows where they are and if they say they are they they're lying because they they move around uh some people say they're alive but you know honestly uh everybody says that about everything in gur so you know it's possible but <laughs> it might not be well, it, it, he makes it a point to say that, like, I mean, it was almost a trick question when I asked because we don't know uh, any, really much about the Unchained Lands. And then he sort of has a, uh, a an aside thought. He's like, well, that does seem suspicious, actually. Like, I was there and I don't seem to know much about it, mm-hmm. um, which maybe informs the plot a little bit down the line. <laughs> um, we will find out more about that. But yes, uh, given that we are just following the Champion of the Gods, which predominantly took place in Gur, almost exclusively took place in Gur, um, he didn't make it far. Like, he's still in those lands, um, and, he, and he ends up traveling to these these unchained lands. I say he. Let's talk about the he, the royal he. Uh, who are we dealing with, guys? Tell me about the titular character, Hamilcar. Well, it's Hamilcar, uh, but Hamilcar as he is uh, following Champion of the Gods, which means that uh, he's a knight questor that has that happened part of the way through Champion of the Gods, right? Yep. Became became a knight questor. But then, uh, and obviously this has spoilers for, for Champion of the Gods, but uh, he uh, he had some interaction with the uh, villain from that that uh, changed some of his essence. So he's kind of being hunted by elements of Azir, and also, he's not sure what happens if he uh, if he has to go back for reforging. There's some element of his uh, soul that has been damaged or altered or something like that. Uh, and so, the uh, the prospect of death is uh, is a little more daunting for him than for uh, for other stormcasts or for him uh, previously. So. Yeah. Yeah, he alludes to the fact that like his last reforging could have been his last completely, and he may not make it out alive uh, again. So there's that as a certain edge to or danger uh, to anything that any anything that he does uh, going forward. Yeah. So he's an immortal who's worried about his mortality, right? So that's kind of a an interesting perspective. And also, this is a bit of a spoiler for Champion of the Gods, but he's a bombastic character who now has doubts about his his ability to be 
be the person that he believes he is. Well, uh, you say that, but I think that's been, we've seen that in previous books. Like he, he, there's a separation between the, uh, the words and the, the face he puts forward to attempt to inspire others. That's true. Uh, but then, then his, you know, you can see his, in, in his inter- internal thoughts, he's like, I don't know if I can actually pull off this thing that I just said I uh, could do, but guess I'm in it now, you know, so that, that doesn't feel too new, but there are, there are new doubts to be considered here. Yeah. And, well, yeah. Well, perpetual, perpetual new doubts. Oh, uh, go ahead, and that's part of Hamilcar. If you haven't read anything about him before, um, he is very much a first person character and you, as Davey mentioned, you get to hear his words, but also his thoughts. Right. So this is a, a different kind of AOS story than most of the ones that we read. Um, so that's a really interesting perspective and part of what makes Hamilcar so much fun. His hilarious thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it, I don't have anything else to add beyond what you guys have talked about. He's the same Ham- Hamilcar that we know and love that I personally know and love. And, uh, this is, <laughs> friend of the show, <laughs> Hamilcar. Friend of the show, Hamilcar. And this is a continuation of that story. Um, given that uh, we're following up the Champion of the Gods, we, we do drag on a couple of other characters from that story as well. Um when last we saw him, he was flying off into the sunset on the back of an eagle princess named Agar. Which, when you uh, when you say it out loud, uh, is is pretty funny. <laughs> like it, it sounds like that you know, American bald eagle shooting a gun with a bandana on or something. You know, like just some crazy T-shirt somebody came Wait, up with. Wait, is yeah. is it not? Because that's exactly how I picture it. Where did he get that gun? Um, it's awesome. And then who who's also flying uh, alongside him, his trusty sidekick, Davey? My man, Nassam. Yeah. Uh, from Jarek. And he still has his fabulous mustache. Uh, he's basically a, a great sword that uh, has quartz, quartzite armor and weapons. And uh, there's, uh, to describe him, it says, despite the, his quiet state of polite terror, the Jarek man was as immaculately turned out as always. <laughs> it was, it, his, guy is he awesome. was wearing a turban as if he had just, uh, like, wove it up on his head um, as they're flying yep. on the back of this this eagle. Yeah. So the dude, Love that <laughs> top <laughs> notch. Um, so those are the few characters that we know sort of going into this. Obviously, we're going to meet a, a bunch more uh, as the story goes on, but we'll talk about them when we talk about the spoilers section. Um, but uh, that's the gist of what we got. Is there any other what's we want to cover before we dive into the spoilers? Uh, cool. So then if that sums up our spoiler-free section, let's dive right into the spoiler phase. Oh, we're here. We did it. We made it on to the spoiler phase. Um, let's... Spoiler Dickens out of this thing. So uh, I think we sort of already alluded to how this story opens. Um, Hamilcar, Nassam, riding on the back of an eagle princess, flying around. Uh, Wouldn't you know it, there's a battle going on below them um, because they're flying over this this fortress. So what's the scene we find ourselves in? What are they they doing here? Uh, Well, we're kind of dropped into into the story, as it were, just like Hamilcar himself is very much dropped into the narrative. Um, And he sees this battle and he's like, Oh, I do battles. Battles are cool. Let's figure out what's going on with this one. Direct quote from the book. <laughs> so, uh, he flies down on Agar. Um, and it's, it's a gorgeous fortress, right? Like, um, so it is, it's definitely not something that would necessarily fit into Gur if you were just, um, throwing out the description to somebody else. So it's absolutely 
a place that has a feel of ancientness to it, right? Like it has a feel of age, it has a feel of defense. Um, and uh, as he arrives, he sees that there are other Stormcasts there already, right? And then he starts to have some questions about what's going on. Yeah. So he does, he does arrive in there. Like I said, there's that battle going on over this, this sort of beautiful fortress. Um, and he, as he always does, basically, he always seems to find himself in a position to rally uh, free guild forces. So he plops himself down on top of some like darks, what are they called? Dark shards or, you know, the, the old uh, dark elves um, and immediately engages in combat with the undead forces that are sort of rushing the walls um, of this place. He there's uh, all sorts of night haunt flying around. I think there's different skellies, but then notably he has to um, tackle. And I think at some point he actually does tackle uh, or at least bear hug a Morgast. Ooh, like him. I don't know the difference. I think mm-hmm. Archai are the, the dual wielding dudes. Um, and so He's fighting. He's bemoaning the fact that undead don't ever have have any sort of like witty repartee <laughs> with him. Um, and uh, but he's able to I don't know flip over, squeeze, break in half um, uh, a Morgast. He actually uh, he gets a, a lot of the work done, but uh, he kind of gets bailed out at the last minute by Nassam. Nassam discharges a pistol into the back of its head while while Hamilcar's struggling. He's like, "Hey, what did I tell you about stealing my glory?" <laughs> I mean, he, he had it right where he had him right where he wanted him. I think we've spoken before about stealing my thunder, Nassam. <laughs> I know, Lord. I know, Lord. <laughs> um, so I'm, I didn't mean to shortchange Nassam, but uh, <laughs> I would never let you do that. Yeah, of course not. Uh, so, but the but between the teamwork of these these best the best friends gang, um, they are able to take down uh, this Morgas, which then, whether it's directly related or not. Uh, uh, abates some of the undead forces and the 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 attack um recedes uh, for the moment and it's at this time that uh hamilcar is greeted by another of the Stormcast, a liberator of the um anvils of the heldenhammer and specifically a, a particular storm host that will i don't know i'm beating around <laughs> the bush i'll just tell you it, of the imperishables and it turns out hamilcar has arrived at the base of operations of the imperishables led by uh notorious uh lord celestint uh insider of internet flame wars (laughs) cetrus i think that's part of his name actually um and and hamilcar is like oh no i really stepped into it this dude's terrifying he also he also doesn't kneel (laughs) i think previously he might even said that cetrus is what i can't remember i think he was one of the he can count on one hand the people he wouldn't want to fight um and I think Cetrus was one of them. I, I can't recall exactly. Uh, but that is where he is led. Um, so uh, smash cut to uh, Hamilcar walking up to Cetrus's, I don't know, command room or whatever you want to call it. Uh, the latter of whom is pouring over this map. And as, as Hamilcar walks in, he, he gets a glance at the map and it, like it hurts his head. Like it looks blank to him and it makes no sense. And it, and it gives him a little bit of a headache. That's weird. Um and eventually Cetrus does it, initially doesn't give him the time of day, but eventually uh, he sort of looks up and they have a little little conversation. Um, Davey, remind me, what, remind me what they talk about. So Cetrus knows that there's something here that's important and he realizes like little by little he's learning more about it. Um, so this, this blank map is slowly getting filled in. Uh, and so he's, he's saying we're, gonna, we're here to defend this. This is important. Um, and he's like by Sigmar's by Sigmar's decree, like we're here um, because because Sigmar says so, and so our job here is to uh, outlast death itself, both 
you kind of get like a, in a literal and figurative sense, which is kind of <laughs> fun. Yeah. There is one point where uh, Hamilcar is saying like, so, you know, what is it? Mm-hmm. And Cetra's like, it is a storm vault. And uh, Hamilcar whistles. Of course, I had no <laughs> idea what a storm vault was, but it seemed an appropriate response to the somber gravitas of the Lord's blessings. Yes. It's because he, he, he understands the importance of having a willing audience when you're telling a good story, yeah. Yeah. which is, which is, which is fun. Um, and so, uh, Cetra said at some point he's basically saying like, all right, well, you're here now you're going to, you're going to work for me. You're going to help me defend this place from the, you know, the undead forces. They're, they're coming back and I, and I need your help. And Hamilcar in his head is like, whoa, 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 whoa. I answered to nobody. Like, check out this new, new, uh, uh, get out or get up I've got on. Um, I've, I've changed since the last time we've, we've met and Cetra's like, oh yeah, I know you look a little different. Um, and I can't remember why, but for whatever reason they shake hands, um, and in doing so, uh, Cetris gets a little taste of that there is something wrong with Hamilcar. We've talked about before in our the Champion of the Gods, after the events of that story, uh, Hamilcar is missing something sort of, uh, some component, something inherent uh, to the Stormcastness of himself. Uh, and it makes every, all the other Stormcasts feel weird about him. And they can sense that something's off. And Cetris is no exception. Um, and so yet again, we have another example of people being like, oh, Hamakar, it's not just your, your personality that rubs us the wrong way, but there's something <laughs> literally about you that is is off. And this kind of wraps up with, uh, with Cetris being like, and to be clear, you're here to defend it. We're, and you are not going to go check it out. Like that's, totally against the rules 100% do not do that Hamilcar's like I gotcha wink <laughs> so yeah we have Cetris who is a character who is tasked with defending the storm vault right and he can't even look at the map and really understand what's going on and so it is a little bit obvious that there is something in the storm vault that he needs to be able to understand in order to properly defend what's going on here right but he's unwilling to do it because that's not his mission. His mission is to defend the storm vault, right? If Sigmar wanted it hidden, then he's going to enforce that because Sigmar said it's supposed to be hidden. And Hamilcar is very much like, well, but what's this thing, right? Like you don't even know what's going on. You're, you know, you can't even tell what it is you're trying to defend. And there's a disconnect here between you doing your job and what doing what needs to be done. Right. So there's a very clear dissection here between the two characters. Yeah. And so after this exchange, Hamilcar like sort of goes off on his own and thinking to himself, he's like, how are you going to put Hamilcar in a castle uh, and point at a door and say, Hey, you can't go in there. Um, I'm going to go, I'm going to go looking in in that door. Um, And so that's kind of what he does. So they do a little bit of exploring. They being Hamilcar and Nassam. Um, Nassam does the classic sidekick thing. being like, Oh, I don't know. Hamilcar, we shouldn't be doing this. He said we should be uh, out there defending the walls. Um, But Hamilcar is able to justify all this to himself saying like, look, if Sigmar didn't want me to like go looking for this, either a, he'd let me know, or like, I'm a pretty good judge of what I think uh, Sigmar wants um, because I can convince myself that of anything uh, that Sigmar might want. I I punched that guy. It's cool. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. uh, We have an understanding. Yeah. I I love that. Basically his rationale is, well, if Sigmar didn't want me to open this door, he would have never let me come near this fortress. Right. Like, because there's no way I'm not going to open this door because it's who I am. So Sigmar wants to stop me. You better come down and physically stop me right now because this is who I am and I'm here. So deal with it. And it's fun to think that he's so arrogant to, to uh, believe that 
Sigmar, his attention is <laughs> yes, on Hamilcar exactly. such that like uh, he, he's, he cares what I am or I'm not doing at any, at any given point. But at the same time, we've almost seen that to be true. Mm-hmm. Like that. So he's almost a little right, uh, given that like they've had their interactions in Azir before. So uh, what a what a delightful relationship. I want to read a book about the adventures of uh, Hamilcar and Sigmar going off and, and tearing <laughs> Which it Which one is the sidekick? Um, it, you know what? Depends on who you ask. <laughs> uh, but Hamilcar does explore this castle, and lo and behold, he's able to like hone in on this room that like gives him again. He he, he has a hard time focusing on it, um, but he's able to like deduce that this is where he needs to go because it's basically where no one else has gone. Like he's able to look at the footprints yeah. and like the use of this fortress, and he realizes, all right, the other Stormcasts haven't gone this way, which means this is the way I need to be going. Mm-hmm. Um, so even he can tell that something's up uh, with with this fortress and something is trying to direct them away from it, which means that he's going to go the exact opposite direction. Sure. And then anybody who knows their forbidden power mm-hmm. knows that likely what we have here is uh, an umbral engine comes in. This is where my quote at the beginning comes. And this is what makes Hamilcar so fun to read. It's just, he could say, you know, the line could be like, I definitely recognize Grungy's, Grung, Grungy's work. And says, I knew the handiwork of Grumney's disciples when I was stuck in a room with it. <laughs> I guess just such a, just those kind of throwaway entertaining lines are what make this uh, guy so enjoyable to read. And that's, that's coming from his inner thoughts, which, um, which we are fortunate to have access to. Yeah, agreed. Um, I was thinking, and this, I should have made you guys come up with your favorite quote from this story, your favorite Hamilcar quote, because um, I definitely have mine and I will bring, be bringing it up shortly. But uh, so he, he does open that door. And, and so if you don't mind, I would like to talk about this little temple area that's here, right? So um, Hamilcar, being someone who bolts through things, right, is able to overcome this feeling of I shouldn't be here. And as he looks at it, it's a gorgeous mosaic, a mural um, of a woman who is being led in a palanquin or, or some such thing by all these disciples, right? So there is a, a lot of actual background that is being given to you in the fres- in, in the artwork that is on the door to this vault itself, right? So as opposed to some of the other descriptions that we've heard where it's like, oh, this is literally in the middle of nowhere underneath the lake, right? Oh, this is in the bottom of this thing or way up in the, you know, it's in this city. You actually have a, a portrait of some person, right? So this is an interesting kind of lead into the storm vault. It's not just this impersonal tomb. It actually seems to be almost more of a reverential presentation. So we open it up and inside we see the penumbral engine, right? And so we know that this is what's causing this obfuscation of going, going around here. And then we are also introduced to this character of Ansira. Ansira. So she's sitting in a chair. Ooh, at the base of a chair. She's not even in the chair. And she's impossibly old, right? Like, it it doesn't look like she belongs alive. <laughs> it sounds like something my three-year-old would say, you don't belong alive. <laughs> so, so what I mean is that, like, she has the appearance of someone who has had a wasting disease, but has not succumbed, right? Like, of endless tiredness endless um exhaustion right um and as we start to hear this conversation it's become very apparent that that is very much her entirety of acknowledgement of existence at this point uh, 
Yeah. So, and at one point, Hamilcar is presuming that she is the thing that the penumbral engine is is obscuring. That it's you know she must be some valuable uh, person that Sigmar didn't re- chose for whatever reason not to recruit into his pantheon or whatever the case may be. But as we recall, these penumbral engines have to be have to be powered by something, uh, and it becomes clear that she has been powering this. She willingly went in to make the sacrifice to to power this. Uh, and it's not it's not been a it's been not been a cool thousand years as it turns out. Yeah, I think what we've uh, something we've glossed over both from the mural and from what we've seen her physically here is it's she sure she was being carried like in the in the image that we saw outside the room she was being carried and sort of maybe venerated but she was also chained at that point like she had chains on her um, and as we see her sitting in this room with the penumbral engine she's also chained to the chair like um, it. So that which sort of lends uh, itself to Hamilcar thinking that she's trapped there because maybe she was, you know, under lock and key. Uh, but it's like you just said, we find out it's not because she was the the target or the the treasure that was being locked in here, but rather she was the power source um, of that penumbral engine. Um, and so they glean this obviously because they start chatting. She, although she's sort of wasting away, she's definitely coherent and is able to have a conversation. Uh, let me let me regale you with uh, sort of their introduction, um, Hamilcar. Uh, <laughs> says, I, I, I took a cautious step towards her, wary of her light returning in full force. Uh, my name is Hamilcar Bear Eater, Knight Quester of Sigmar Heldenhammer, the God King of Azir and of the Mortal Realms, my lady. I bowed. Perhaps you've heard of me. She responds, uh, I've been here in this vault for an age of the world. I knew that, but I still thought it possible. <laughs> My dude. Oh, I love him. So, uh, he just thought maybe, I know, maybe word got, got in here, uh, that, uh, he was out and about kicking it in the mortal realms and maybe, maybe his reputation had preceded him into this penumbral engine room. Uh, who, who's to say, uh, but I love like, even in the presence of great power, he's, he's, um, pretty still fairly, fairly irreverent. Well, I guess both irreverent and irreverent. Um, cause I mean, that was a pretty, uh, formal uh, introduction. So- so an interesting thing uh, as this story unfolds, right, is that Insira is in this vault, but it, it almost seems as if she is not, her consciousness is almost not contained within it, right? She is such a powerful being that she has not been sitting in a room by herself, but has watched everything that has happened around her, right? She has watched the cult that had grown around her in life, to just disintegrate. She's watched everything fall apart, right? And that's interesting. You're, you're picking up more than I did necessarily. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that definitely didn't happen, but uh, um, I, I that's a that's an interesting uh, way to think about it. The only the only like or one. Uh, reference to that is the fact that she is sort of aware of the stuff that's going on around her. Um, so so they, he gets to talking with her saying like, all right, well, well, I don't want to get to the motivations quite yet, but she does know the fact that time has passed and that her civilizations that have surrounded her over, you know, these, these centuries at this point, um, uh, that the things she knows have fallen. She knows there are, there are great laws that have was that have, um, taken down civilizations around her. She's aware of like the age of chaos. She was aware of, um, like the March of death. So she must have some sense of, um, the outside world, which you wouldn't necessarily have expected if she was locked in this room. So she has to be getting her information from somebody yeah. or and, somewhere. And I think that's the really interesting thing that is revealed in this conversation is that she's not in a room just doing a thing, right? She is trapped in here as the chains very much tell, right? 
but she can have some sense of what's going on around her. And with her character, her character is obviously this tremendously powerful, tremendously incredible um, individual, right? She's able to power this penumbral engine for literally centuries. And, and powered by faith, I think it makes a point of powered by faith because she was the the head of the Sigmarite cult. And so what, what really strikes me about her character is that all the stories we hear about the Stormcast is they're plucked at the moment of right before death, right? So they could have saved their civilization, but they're taken away, right? They could have done this thing, but they're, you know, or they failed, but Sigmar takes them at the moment of failing. They come back centuries later, right? And maybe they can make things right. But she was plucked from the midst of them, but still is within the midst of them, watching everything that she cared about and hold dear deteriorate. So it is almost as if she is a stormcast who is cursed to immortality, but cursed to never be able to fix it, right? She doesn't have that ability to come back down and to take revenge. She has to sit in a room and power the engine. So it, it was a really interesting twist on the stormcast storyline for me. Interesting. Um, well, and we can maybe fast forward to the here and now, and to I guess maybe build off that in some capacity, she was also asleep because because of the necroquake, we're, we're fast forwarding to the, sort of the present day, it woke her up from something. Like it, it jogged her memory. It made her maybe hyper more aware than she was before, or maybe she was, you know, fell asleep at some point um, and woke, woke back up because now she was um, sort of brought into consciousness and um, reminded of all this stuff that she's lost. And because of that, and she sort of realized how much time has passed and, and, and the sacrifice that she's made. And uh, because of that, um, she's starting to have a little bit of a crisis of faith. Um, we've seen that the Necroquake has uh, jostled um, other penumbral engines such that it would sort of alert the outside world to that they exist, these storm faults and their locations and what they're, what they're hiding. But that, as we find out throughout this conversation, turns out isn't the problem here, but rather um, the storm vault or the penumbral engine is working just fine, um, but rather her connection to it, her power source is faltering because uh, she's come to the realization that she doesn't really love this job anymore, uh, which I deeply, deeply uh, understand and sympathize <laughs> with. So uh, I guess what, what, how does she feel? Like what, what, what are some of her motivations now? This is, it sounds like uh, just she's, she's described also physical suffering on top of all the, all the uh, things that she's had to kind of be aware of uh, decaying around her basically. And, uh, Hamilcar is like, oh, well, actually, like, you're the one to do this. You can, you can lock it down. You can, you know, you can, uh, fire this thing back up. It's, it's down to you. Um, like do it for Sigmar. You did it before. Let's, let's do it again. And, uh, she's like, no, you, you know, you, even if you can convince me, it's not going to do any good. And he's like, well, what are you talking about? She says, well, uh, because I no longer have faith. Um, and, uh, he says, well, when I came in here, you're praying. She's like, yeah, I was praying for death. Uh, and so she's wanting an end to this. And she's, you know, she talks about how if she'd known how difficult this was in, in her state of mind right now, she'd, she'd say she wouldn't do it again. If I had it to do over, I would not do it again if I knew just how awful it was going to be. Uh, and unfortunately, if you're praying for death, that uh, draws yep. the gaze of Nagash and his followers who arrive. 
Do you think that was actually directly correlated and it wasn't just they were looking for stuff in Storm Balls, but literally she was calling to the God of Death and he answered? That's how I read it, for sure. Oh, man, I didn't get that at all until right now. Well, one of the other interesting things um, is we kind of had this conversation in our Discord a little bit of faith, right? If you if you have faith in something, um, that it gives you kind of a special power in the mortal realms, right? If you have faith in an afterlife, that afterlife can be created. You get enough people to believe you can create your own gods. You can create your own um, existence in in Shayish. And so it's interesting to see somebody who is having faith not in a god, but almost in herself, right? In her purpose. And so where their gods walk the lands, right? Faith is still a motivating thing. And faith is still something that you need in order to be the person that you want to be. So it's an interesting exploration of that idea to me. Yeah, like I mean, the way we know faith to be is is you know not understanding something and still believing it to be true. Whereas like it, when you know gods are real, like what is faith anymore? Like what what is your version of faith then? Um, so uh, and then how can you lose it again, knowing that gods are definitively walking the earth? Um, what does it mean to lose faith in something, even though it still is demonstrably true? Is is a, a fun little thought experiment um in this in this story uh all right cool so um they're chatting 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 having some philosophical discussions uh but guess what this is a hamilcar story we don't have time for philosophical discussions boom the door explodes they hear a big explosion outside and hamilcar uh excuses himself and goes running uh to see what all the hubbub is all about um kicks open the door of the 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 storm vault that he was in and the hallway that he had walked down is all but obliterated um and the forces of undead are come pouring in and uh, it turns out uh the fight is not yet done and uh, the forces of undead are, are redoubling their efforts and really sending their their heavy hitters um the free guild are sort of running around in panic this is hamilcar and his element rallying the forces uh calling them to his side uh sort of taking them under his wing and he's trying to save the the the, the lessers um and he thinks the only way to to do so is to shepherd them into the storm vault and so that's what he does he says all right he gets as many as he as he can um into into the room because that's maybe the last place that they can defend um and as they're sort of running back uh it becomes clear who specifically is assaulting this place um but it's a retinue of uh soul blight blood knights led by uh, none other than one of Hamilcar's many arch enemies, uh, but uh, Manfred von Karstein. We should have all said it at the same time. One, two, three. Manfred, Manfred von, von Karstein. Karstein. Thank you. For, uh, I'm not going to splice those on top of each other. Uh, <laughs> More target being a pain in my neck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, that's what you're trying to get out. Um, perfect. Uh, Hamilcar is the best. Uh, and so he, he kind of has a shudder because he sees, um, a sh- a sh- how do you say it? A Shigaroth, a Shigaroth um, fighting uh, Agar up in the skies. And Agar is you know, this huge, giant eagle, like uh, is, you know, twice as long as a Shigaroth. But uh, apparently the the abyssal is like like stone, like rock. And he he's throwing his weight around and is able to like take a huge chunk out of the eagle who then has to like disengage and fly off into the distance. Um, and uh, Manfred just sort of waltzes um, in uh, to sort of introduce himself again, reintroduce himself to uh, Hamilcar. And so they have a little one-on-one conversation, the throne a lot of words. Hamilcar's in his element because he loves talking about how cool he is. 
Um, and a battle is not a battle unless you can really get some sweet jabs, verbal jabs in um, ahead of time. Were you guys uh, excited to see Manfred? Were you surprised? How'd you feel? Uh, I, I, I enjoyed it for sure. It, it's always nice to see, you know, the guy who destroyed the world walking around trying to wreck face again. Yeah, n- n- nice is the word I would use for that. I'm never sure what you're going to get with uh, with Manfred. Like sometimes it, it's it's whenever he shows up, you're you're not sure uh, where he's going to land. It seems like he, but he, you know, sometimes he's he's in a more collaborative role, and sometimes he's purely antagonistic, and he's in the latter of those two this time. Yeah, this at this point, um, and it's right around this time as well uh, that um, the imperishables, imperishables come rushing to the the aid as well. So like our, our heroes have all sort of convened in this storm vault uh, right as, as Manfred is is attacking. Well, I think there's also a really interesting moment here too when Hamilcar realizes that it is Manfred. Right, he goes through this little crisis of faith because he sees a Shigaroth. And he starts to recall how he died, right? He has this like start of dread almost of that's the thing that killed me last time, right? So we're talking about the immortal dealing with his mortality. And he has this moment where he has to figure out if he's going to stay, like almost. Uh, so he watches uh, the, that says, I watched the princess depart, but all I could think of was death. The jaws of the abyssal on my chest crushing the life from me, the lure of spirit host in its gullet, pulling me under as death sought to devour me. Even as the tug of Sigmaron pulled against it, the promise of obligate oblivion versus the agonies of reforging. Even now, I'm not sure I got the better deal. Mm. So we're talking about this crisis of faith with Ansira, right? But now we have this crisis of faith with Hamilcar. So it, it we have this mirroring, but Hamilcar obviously has chosen to have faith, whereas Ansira has not. So that was that was a super cool moment for me. But you gotta have faith. Yeah, no, and, and I agree, and I'm and I'm glad that like at some point like Hamilcar steals himself, and he's like, you know what? I, I you know, he stands up and he sort of faces his fear because uh, of course he does. Yeah, what he does is he calls to everybody else that's fighting to rally them, which is the opposite of what Ansira did, where she's sitting this lo- alone in this eternity of torment. Hamilcar solves his crisis of faith by calling upon the people that he has rallied to help and come defend with him. So it's almost like he uses them as a shield to buffer his own doubt. Sure, I see that. So uh, all the all the major players are gathered in one place, um, and now we fight. Uh, and all, all sort of hell break, breaks loose. Manthrid is throwing around, um, you know, necromantic energies left and right. He's, he's blowing people up he's like just swatting away entire lines of liberators um his blood knights are going to town on what is left of the free guild forces in here and um it is hamilcar's uh, privilege to try and take down um, manfred specifically um he knows as he sort of talked about a couple times in the story now that like if you take down the head the rest of the 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 vampires in this case are, are going to flee if they lose their leader. So he thinks, you know what, if I can get in, get in a lucky blow, um, we can, we can end this all, uh, all right now. Um, and so he thinks he can try and, and, and take uh, Manfred down. So they one V one for a while, but it soon's beco- soon becomes clear that Manfred is kind of just toying with them. And um, it, Hamilcar really doesn't have much of a shot to, to, to take him out. It's, I was sort of surprised at this point. It seemed like Manfred really got a level up here and that he was maybe more powerful than we've really ever seen. Did you guys get that sense or is that just me? Uh, 
I feel like this is a fulfillment of what we've heard in the other lore is that when we had the Archai to come in again, um, the Archai are now very much the bodyguards of the Mortarks, right? And so they are an expression of Nagash's will. And so it, it's not only that we have Manfred, it's that we have also these bodyguards with him, which is something I don't know that we've seen in the lore before, or at least this expressly given. And so it's almost like we have three heroes bowling in, three uh, expressions of, of Nagash's will. Um, but even so, he still is just like, he seems to be more powerful. You're absolutely right. Yeah, and so Manfred's just, just handling him. Um, but uh, who should step in? Uh, but uh, our our true king of the undead, but uh, Cetris uh, joins the jo- joins the fight. Player two has joined the fight and uh, rushes in to help Hamilcar. And I think this is something we need to talk about because once Cetris sort of makes his presence known to Manfred, there's a pause in the battle so that they can get a couple uh, couple jabs in here. All right. Yes. So uh, we're talking about Cetris coming in, and he says, "Sigmar, Lord of Heaven, forgive this unworthy trespass." His gaze slid across the moving wonder of the penumbral engine before settling on the old woman. She returned it quite evenly. I loved her, I think, just a little bit. Like, it's just a great line of just, you know, she could stand up to him. Oh, sure, sure. Um, but who else can stand up to him is Manfred. Uh, Davey, tell me about this interaction. Well, so when Cetris uh, announces himself to Manfred, my name is Cetris, Lord Celestin of the Imperials, and I command you die. Uh, and Manfred flinches, actually flinches. He flinches, yeah. yeah. So this is this is uh, astounding to Hamilcar. And we're like, oh, here it's on. And then uh, he punches Cetris in the chest and tosses him away and starts laughing. Is oh, Sigmar, what advantage do you seek to gain from this sleight of hand? You lie, thief. You are not the king whose name you bear. If you were he, then I would be slain already. <laughs> yeah. I mean... Good, bad, but you can talk more about it later. But like, this is not ex- how I expected this to go down. Um, but in a way, I'm glad. Like, in a way, it's kind of fun to see it's subverted expectations. Um, yeah, so they do their best. I think there's, you know, they they eventually Cetris gets back up and they're they're trying to take him down, um, and it's just not working. Manfred is just tossing people around like rag dolls, and um, eventually he gets Cetris up by the throat. And he's lift, He's holding them up as as one would hold up a, a goblet, probably of blood in this situation. Um, and he's basically ready to just crunch Cetris's neck, um, as he's sort of sending his forces after the old woman, and everyone's trying to you know protect her and all this jazz. Um, and things are looking awfully dire. But uh, Cetris, uh, ever the imperishable, uh, makes one final move. Um, one final sacrifice uh, through his faith, and is able to stick his hand. Um, while sort of he's elevated in the air, stick his hand in the penumbral engine, which proceeds to like just obliterate the hand. It sort of slices and dices because it's got those spinning wheels, um, takes the hand off. Um, but in doing so, he's sort of, I don't, I, I'm hard to describe it. He supercharges the engine, perhaps uh, adds a bit of energy to the the wheel, which starts um, arcing out uh, as, as a right energy and shoots out bolts of lightning and, and light, um, which then proceeds to, skipping and shoot all across the room and starts lighting up fools. Uh, and by that, I mean the vampires and the undead forces. And I think Manfred takes one in the face as well um, and proceeds to clear out some of uh, the, uh, the evil forces in the room. So it's kind of a, a last ditch effort to 
uh, you know, enact a giant AOE and and and, and clear out the the baddies uh, from this from this space. Did I get that right? Is that how how it went? That's down? more or less it. Yeah, the dust is starting to settle, and uh, Cetrus is still hung up in the air there. And Ansira says he's not strong enough for this. And Hamilcar's like, watch, Cetrus is the strongest soul I know. He can survive any. And then that's when Lord Celestine broke apart. Yeah. Ooh. Yep. I believe one billion specifically, <laughs> not not one million, not one trillion, but one billion pieces. Uh, and Hamilcar says something to the effect of, like, he's not going to get put together after that. So it says lightning sprayed to the eight corners of the cosmos. Blood Knights dropped instantly to ash. Morgas lost their animating power and became lifeless bone. Manfred crumpled like a set of clothes with no wear, red steam rising off his bones as lightning arced across the penumbra engine, bored into the walls, and made the entire mountain shake. I took a rather nasty sunburn, too, let me tell you. <laughs> oh, Hamilcar. So so we have this play between Hamilcar and Ansira, right? Ansira losing faith, Hamilcar shaking his faith. But then we have Cetris, who is so stubborn and not in like complete in his faith that when he powers the penumbral engine it becomes a weapon right it doesn't just become something that makes people think about something else or like go slightly away it becomes something completely differently and that the his faith is a is able to obliterate death right like even as Manfred is this incredibly strong person, he is just completely knocked out. So again, a, a really interesting kind of exploration here. Yeah, and very impressive. Um, and so Ansira sees this act of act of faith, this act of sacrifice, um, and basically, like Hamilcar is like, "Oh, what, what are we going to do?" And she's like, oh, you know what? You were right. Uh, I've got this." And she sort of retakes her position as the power source of this penumbral engine um, uh, for re- reasons that maybe we'll talk about. Um, and uh, everything's all right in the world, I guess. So she, she retakes her position, sits back up in the chair and uh, things start to get foggy and, and hazy. And like uh, Hamilcar can remember things in sort of flashes. At one point he's just punching Manford back in the face. Um, but at some point he, he, he forgets how, but he, he sort of leaves this, this place and uh, the memory of how he does so is, is foggy. So we're meant to read this as the penumbral engine starts to work again and people flat out forget uh, where they were or what they were doing is the gist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Is that right? Okay. I was kind of confused, but I think it was probably intentionally confusing. Yeah. So maybe that was, well, I point. think part of it also is that, uh, and Sarah says that his power was a gift, right? So her burden has been eased somewhat, right? Either because of the, the witness of his sacrifice or because he still is able to give that faith to the penumbral engine, even though his body is completely gone. Right. Okay. Yeah. Neat. All right. So that is the plot. Any other plot stuff before we start talking about some fun, interesting questions that I have written. Like all my (laughs) questions. I'll be the judge of that. (laughs) All right. Um, so first things first, I guess let's, let's keep continuing this line of thought. Um, do we think that Ansiro was right um, about her initial impressions on like how, how how weighty the sacrifice is to be powering the penumbra, penumbral engine? And like to this to this point, I don't know what changed her mind. What do you think changed her mind at the end there? Um, uh, uh, the witness of the absolute faith of Cetrus, right? Like because 
it, it wasn't just his sacrifice, right? But he, he was in interminable pain. As Hamilcar says, it was the first and only time that I heard him raise his voice, right? And she is in a marathon, right? And Cetrus is in a sprint. But they're doing the same thing, right? For the same reason. And I, I feel like what changed her mind is just the knowledge of how necessary it is. Yeah, I think that just she has that moment of uh, a chance for solidarity and connection with somebody, which you don't get a lot of when you're on your own for a thousand years suffering. Uh, but I think that's enough to, to kind of uh, remind her of what, what made her take on the task in the first place. Okay, sure. I, I hadn't thought of the connection or the, you know, sharing a burden aspect of it, but that's, you know, probably true. Um, despite the fact that, like, I mean, she doesn't get to, like, see them, but, like, there's plenty of people out there in the realms that are powering their own penumbral engines. And so um, I wonder if she didn't take solace from sort of that connection to the world at large. Well, I don't know. I don't know if that's spelled out. I, I was under the understanding that most of the penumbral engines were powered by the souls that were being imprisoned. Right. So like, I think it was a variety. Sometimes it was good people. Sometimes oh, it was okay. bad people. Sometimes it was volunteers. Sometimes it was prisoners. Like it was a, a, a split. Some people, sometimes the good board just kind of like, meh, not bad, not terrible. Sure. Well, plus if she was sleeping for most of this, um, like no big deal. It's totally <laughs> fine. Um, I mean, I could sleep for a century. That would be ideal. Um, so do you, uh, I'll, I'll get, get your guys' impressions. Do you think she was, do you think she was right, though? Um, do you think it, it is too much to ask of a single individual to sort of th the sacrifice that, that she's made? I, I mean, I think there's there's an argument there. It was also a, maybe a bargain not made totally in good faith because it sounds like she was uh, what she signed up for uh, was not what was described uh, when she signed up for it was not what she ended up experiencing. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, it's tough. You know, you, the, there's this idea that everyone's got their breaking point and a thousand years of, of suffering is an awful lot to ask of, of somebody. Um, this is all for this glaive or something that blood glaive. I don't Yeah. Um, oh yeah. It was some weapon yeah. that we didn't even talk about cause it was almost immaterial sure. to the story. Um, but. The witch, witch glaive of Uhor. Um, mm. What'd you call me? And it, it's, uh, it's tough cause it, you like, it's tough for us to say whether it's worth it or not because we don't know anything about that, you know. And this is this is maybe where your idea of what where does where does faith stand in this sort of uh, environment where where uh, gods are known facts, right? Like she's got to have faith in this being the right decision, you know, because uh, and, and saying that way, way that we don't know just how powerful this weapon is or what the repercussions of it being released into the wrong hands would be. Um, that's that's where she's got to have the faith. Uh, to keep going. Sure. Um, it, towards the end of the book, I think, I forget who said it, or maybe it was no one said it, but they, it was alluded to the, like, if Sigmar could have powered these things himself, he would have, or was I reading that right? Like, what, yeah, no, she, she says that she says that. And I think that also maybe ties into watching Cetris because she knows there's some shard of Sigmar in all these uh, Stormcast Eternals. And so I think that was maybe also a reminder for her. If he, if he could do it, he would. I see. Okay. Interesting. Um, so, uh, speaking of the penumbral engine, just generally, like, how did, how did you feel about the engine in execution? I feel like we've, um, we've seen, or we've talked about it, like in forbidden, forbidden power, like what it means, like we were using these penumbral engines sort of abstractly to hide these storm bolts, which, which were kind of the star of the show for, for most of forbidden power. But like, I don't know that we've seen like a real life example of a penumbral engine and how it actually affects like real people 
in the area. Um, did it sort of match your expectation? Did it, it, it match um, how you thought a penumbral engine ought to work? Yeah, I thought I thought so. I, I maybe not thought of it in that specific detail, but I really uh, I enjoyed how it was presented, and I, I I bought it. Looked good. Yeah, I the only thing it made me want is it made me want my penumbral engine to spin. Right, that was such a strong aspect of how we described it. I want my model to spin around on the inside or something like that. You know, like to make it look like something that is active instead of something that is static. So I think that's that's something I did a really good job of making it an active thing. Um, if anybody can convert that up, Paul, I I believe it is you. <laughs> All right, uh, sounds good. Just don't touch mine. Um, right. No, but I, I definitely I definitely uh, see what you're saying. Um, I thought it was fun, like how, uh, like a, a map of the region, not even just like the fortress itself, but literally the whole area um, was like almost un- indeterminable or invisible, like this this map, and no one could really think about it. Um, or the, the fact that like, um, the, a- so they were talking about how the ATAR worship, the, the Eagle, I'm not gonna say people, just the Eagles, um, had built this fortress up, but then had just sort of wandered away and lost track of where it was because presumably after the fact they put the, um, they put the penumbral engine in, in the storm vault. Um, and even this whole like unchained lands, like it's all about rumor and no one really knows the details of it, probably because of this very specific point in the unchained lands that made the whole region sort of unknowable, um, which, is kind of cool. Like if you want to keep people away, like it's keeping people away, um, mm-hmm. not just the room, but literally the area of Gur. Um, so it really shows the the power of it, which I yeah. thought was uh, pretty cool. Well, and it, it, it brings an interesting thing, right? A thought to my mind, which is that if the penumbral engine has this much power to make people forget, just imagine how much power it had for people to become intelligent, right? What oh, a gift yeah. this was how powerful it was and is it really worth it for the sacrifice of millennia of making people forget how much better off would people be if they had spent that millennia working towards bigger and better defenses, bigger and better civilizations, right? Like that was the thing that really struck out to me, stuck out to me while reading this. Yeah. Yes. Sigmar, you hear, hear him? (laughs) What are you doing, man? Come on. Um, and kind of along those same lines, when we so we'll jump to the, back to the end. So uh, the the construct of this story is that Hamilcar is telling this story to some folks. It's kind of like the Champion of the Gods. It was as if he was regaling a tale like around a fire, and so that 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 is sort of happening here. And at the very end, um, he he sort of brought back to the storytelling phase of, of this, and he says something effective: uh, "We all serve Sigmar in our." We all serve Sigmar in our own way. You see, each according to our strengths. Not even the Stormcast Eternals. Ha, yes, not even me. And what was that at the back there? What became of Manfred? Were we talking about Manfred? My question is this. What is he talking about? Like, I understand, like, he has a hard time, like, remembering stuff. But is he kidding right there? Or, like, I have a hard time parsing what he's what he's getting at. I, I even, I don't understand that not even the Stormcast Eternals. Like, something feels weird about the syntax there. I, I didn't totally follow. And I, I think I'm just not getting it because I feel like, uh, kind of probably paid pretty close attention to this since it's closing out his story. Yeah. But yeah, I, I did not totally bring this one home. Gotcha. Me neither. Hey, uh, Geimer, if you listen to this, you probably, first of all, don't come on, man. Um, but then what, what do you mean by that? I don't understand. I don't understand that the closing. Um, and like when he's talking about Manfred, like, is he, is he kidding? Like Manfred isn't a big deal or did he forget Manfred was even there? He just told the yeah, story. I'm wondering, I'm wondering if it's, you know, as, as she's, as she's reasserting her powering of that penumbral engine, maybe the uh, 
maybe the memory of even these events surrounding it are starting to fade. Like that, that piece is what I took away okay, there. Okay, gotcha. Interesting. Uh, speaking of uh, Manfred, we'll just keep leading into my questions. Um, I, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the Cetris arc, especially with all the hubbub, like sort of on the internet and people's reaction to this. So what what did you think about uh, the initial Cetris reveal, maybe in Champion of the Gods and, and how his arc was closed out? Arc is not the word for this, but uh, was closed out uh, in this short story. Lightning arc. It works. Ah, get out of here. Uh, if you're going to make that joke, you better follow <laughs> okay. up with the, the real, real <laughs> deal. Um, so I think it was a very satisfying arc for him as a character, right? Like, he is meant to be this um, this immovable stone, right? This this base which everything can be built around. But it's almost as if his story is the allegory for the mortal realms itself. Oh, man. <laughs> because how can you truly have something that never changes in a place as diverse and empowered as the mortal realms, right? Even the gods have whims, have decisions, etc. So having this rock against which the tide of time breaks is almost something that couldn't possibly actually survive, right? At some point it had to give because it just, it, it doesn't fit in as opposed to the old world where you could have this guy who was just solid. He was there and he was going to live interminably in the perpetual now because the perpetual now never changed. Cetras can't really fit in this realm as well to me because everything changes and then the point of his character is that he doesn't right let me let me jump in do you think this is cetra um i don't manfred definitely says i don't think you are the person that you are right um right but it doesn't feel so much as cetra um as much as uh, you talked about blind of the court or court of the blind king earlier right they talk about making things, or we talk about the Osiric Bone Reapers, where they're taking away parts of the personality and bringing them back again, right? To make these things. I don't think the character we have that is Cetris could have been Cetra because there are too many things that were imperative to Cetra's being that are missing from Cetris's character. Does that make sense? I, I guess what I'm saying is, do you think there's any element of the original Cetra in Cetras? As I feel like that's the argument you, you're making there. Like you, by I don't know. I, I don't. I, to me, I didn't. It didn't really sell. I didn't really have a strong like. Oh, this is absolutely Cetra, right? From all the reading of the stories, um, it was more of the Cetras was meant to ev- evoke Cetra, but it wasn't meant to be him, right? So okay. that's that's more of my thought because even even Cetra himself, right, was living and then died and then had this thousands of years of nothing and then goes out and started conquering everything, right? And that's the opposite of what Cetras did. He's standing in one point, doing exactly what he's told and defending something. And so even the way that he fights, it just doesn't seem like the same character to me. Davey, where do you fall? Do you think it was Cetra? He was I, Cetra? I, I don't think so. I think this is... Uh... I think in uh, Champion of the Gods, it was like, hey, this might be. And I don't know if he, if Geimer decided that it was or wasn't. And it's here like, ah, JK, it's not like we're, we're leaving the door open for, for Cetra to maybe pop in elsewhere. Or or you can uh, have your own headcanon about uh, where where he where Cetra exists or does not exist in the mortal realms. 
Sure. I think I fall in the same same boat. I think he did a, a wink and a nod reference in Champion of the Gods, just to you know, just to see how people would would take it, see what uh, the reaction would be. Uh, I think there was quite a bit of negative reaction. I'm sure there's positive as well, but I think the most of what I saw was uh, on the thumbs down side of things. And so, what what a neat way to tie up that that loose end, uh, but throw him as an option in this uh, in this story, um, and have Manfred sort of stand in possibly. Uh, as the author or for the author to say, Hey, Oh, you're, you're not even really, who, uh, uh, the, the big guy himself. Um, it's all just for show. Like, don't trick me. Um, sort of his admission that like, ah, guys, I was, I was maybe kind of messing with you a little bit. Um, and have him sort of, uh, have this final last stand and not do sort of dishonor to the, to the character, have him have this, you know, very memorable, great sacrifice. Uh, but now he's been busted into a million little pieces and we never need to talk about him again. <laughs> That's the end of that. Um, is my uh, personal interpretation of how, how things went. Though, if Geimer wants to clear it up, by all means, let us know. Um, but I think uh, whoever said it, that the door is now still open for Cetra to come back, the actual real life, <laughs> real unlife Cetra, um, that that door, I think, is probably still still open. So I'm glad uh, Geimer went back and sort of tidied that up a little bit. Hopefully it'll give some um, naysayers some closure a little bit. And... Uh, we can we can all move on. We can all grow as uh, people and human beings. Uh, and that is the end of my questions. You guys have any other questions you want to talk about? Uh, let's move it on to our standards. Let's get to the standards, uh, and I I won't do all of them. Uh, I just really want to get to who was your dude. We all know who my <laughs> dude was, uh, and maybe I know who Davy's dude is. But uh, hit me up, like Paul being the the guest for today. Who was who was your dude or dudette? I actually really liked Manfred. Like Manfred, what? Get out of town. He actually felt like a character that was a good counterpart to Hamilcar, right? And that's something I don't think we've quite seen yet. Everybody seems to be a foil for him, but Manfred actually seemed to be able to stand toe to toe, right? And be almost just as blustery, right? Like he gave a villain speech, right? Like, if you were the king that you say you were named after, right? It, like he actually had a presence, and I I really appreciated that quite a bit. Cool. So be it. I'm not going to deter you. Uh, but your answer's wrong. <laughs> hey, uh, David, who's your who is your dude? Uh, well, I almost considered going with Ansira. I did like that. Uh, I did like her development. Uh, the, the struggle she went through in that short little exposure we had to her it was uh, it was enough to sort of identify with sympathize with and believe uh believe the actions she took but i can't turn my back on Nassam. he's my guy <laughs> i knew it so, <laughs> uh yep Nassam. Oh, good. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool uh and my dude also cop out answer it's hamilcar oh my god i love him so <laughs> So very much. Oh God. It's, it's, it's whenever I'm reading Hamilcar, I don't want to read anything else. And whenever I'm reading something else, I wish I was reading Hamilcar. Um, <laughs> Did you have a favorite Hamilcar quote? Oh, it was the one I, I read about the, uh, still, I thought maybe you might've heard of me. I mean, that, was, that was my, my fave. It's just his, his asides are hilarious. Um, it, it's great to have a character that's so action. And by that, I mean like he's always doing something and he's always going to where things are happening because that that can drive a plot forward so quickly and it takes you to such interesting places you always want to read character driven story well, I, I like to tr- read character driven stories i think 
that's the trend. People like to read those sorts of things, but you need a, uh, an active participant in the story. And Hamilcar is that he's always active in the stories and that he's taking place. Things don't yeah. happen to him. He happens to things. Um, <laughs> and because of that, I, I love, um, well, following him. And he's an enjoyable character because he's a way to look at the age of Sigmar from within the fiction of it. You know, it, it's not, he's not breaking the fourth wall, but he's able to like, kind of, have a little laugh at some of the like overly uber serious uh, things that, that we've seen uh, while not sort of, while not ruining it, you know, like uh, it's okay to, to get a chuckle out of some of that, that stuff. Uh, one, one that stood out to me is, you know, like you always have this, uh, this warrior's handshake where they grip forearms, <laughs> uh, you know, they did it in the manner of warriors where, and his take is apparently it's in the manner of warriors to be honest. I only started to do it because everyone seems to expect it. <laughs> uh, and I just, I love that Geimer's by writing it this way is taking a look at these, these kind of tropes that have been built into, uh, into age of Sigmar fiction or, you know, probably a lot of the black library. And he's, he's able to give kind of a nod without, uh, about it without like kind of spoiling the whole thing, you know, uh, have, have a little laugh, uh, but still, uh, not ruin the overall fiction of it, you know? Yeah. Um, I've talked about, I think when we did our Gotrick show, I, I, I like Gotrick as well. And that he's interesting in the moral realms because he can be the sort of stand in for us. He's an outsider being put into the moral realms and his reactions to things are oftentimes our reactions, reactions to things. And so we kind of have that solidarity with him. Hamilcar is a little different in that, um, he's less of a stand in for us, but rather he's a guide toward for the moral realms. And he sort of, uh, sympathize, I not sympathizes with us, but maybe like he puts things in ways that like maybe we understand, or he can phrase things or explore the moral realms and make it a little less mysterious or a little less um, arcane. Um, and like because of that, it's it's more of a guide uh, relationship to to us, the readers. And um, he's just gosh darn funny while he does it. And uh, he's he's my dude. I want to ask. In terms of uh, learning about the moral realms, uh, things that we didn't know before, I really wanted to highlight the penumbral engines just one more time because this is yet another example. And I feel like we we're kind of just talking about this on a different show, but we do so many and I've lost track which one it was. But like whenever a, a, a facet of the moral realms is talked about in some of the background books or like in a rule book or in a book like Forbidden Power, they they reference these penumbral engines, but it's these powerful things that exist in the world. Um, but in those sort of more encyclopedia type texts we don't necessarily get to see how they interact with the real world we don't see their weight or their ramifications to like real people and so in terms of things that i've learned about the moral realms it's, it's seeing how this moral or this penumbral engine um affects the people around it both the people that it's penumbraling <laughs> that is to say making forget but then also what it takes to power it like we knew that some folks either had to sacrifice themselves or they were the energy was getting sucked out of some evil powerful beings but like what does it mean to power it like what what toll does it take on someone like you can say those with words just in a little blurb in forbidden power but to actually see the emotion and the toll and the uh the effect that it takes on someone's psyche in a story like this is is eye-opening it, it, it's something to be learned and sort of dissected and getting your hands dirty in it and um this is yet another example this story if you take nothing else from the story for me anyways it's just to see how that small thing not small thing big thing in the moral realms but it's interaction with people this interaction with characters um this interaction with setting um was uh enlightening um and i really took that away all right um and then finally let's do a, a recommendation for any other stories 
hey guys, go read more Hamilcar stories. There's a whole bunch of hey, them. Geimer, go do it. Go write more right Hamilcar stories. Pause it. Go do it now. <laughs> Geimer, hit, hit stop and get back on that, I don't know, typewriter quill. I don't know what you use, but. <laughs> typewriter um, or quill. Write me some more Hamilcar. Right <laughs> now. Um, uh, please do. And I would if you if you are a crazy person like Paul and Manfred was your dude, then uh, I can recommend the Black Pyramid. I think Manfred, how it acts the Black Pyramid. Manfred Manfred has some uh, screen time in that one. Yeah, you get into his brain in that one a little bit. Well, um, and also we have those audio books from way back in the beginning, right? Uh, the Red Wa and all that that he was in as well. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that whole series. I mean, that's where we yeah. first saw Hamilcar. Actually. Yep. It's trying it back together. Yeah. Beast of Carthage. Oh, best day of my life. <laughs> All right. Um, let's get to let's get to the review, our final review. I guess we didn't do that at the beginning, but that's cool. Um, what did you guys think of the book? Rate it. Don't rate it. R- whatever you prefer. Hit me. Uh, Hamilcar is always awesome. Geimer writes him really well. I will give it uh, 883 out of 1,000 years of noble oh. suffering. <laughs> I'm going to go with eight out of eight. I, I just really like this from the beginning to the end. There was no moment that I was like, eh. you know, everything was just fun. It was a character we knew romping around um, and interacting with other characters in a meaningful way. And everything, everything seemed to have agency and to move forward. So it, it was really enjoyable. I liked it a lot. Awesome. Um, I love everything. Hamilcar. I'm not even going to apologize about that. Um, this is, this will be my one fanboy thing. That's not true. I have a couple other fanboy things, but, uh, Hamilcar does no wrong in my book. Um, so I will give it, um, I'll give it 1 billion out of 1 billion, uh, pieces of Cetrus, the imperishable <laughs> that he, he broke into. Um, you know, it gets, it gets full marks. It's got everything I wanted out of a Hamilcar story. It, which a is Hamilcar uh, B, but like I mentioned, just the, the, the learning and dissecting and investigation on to what it means to have a penumbral engine in the world and what it, how it affects with people. So I, I loved, I learned, um, I laughed. It was uh, an adventure that I will remember for all time. Um, big, 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 big fan. Uh, so that is it. Any other thoughts you guys want to have? I'm good. Perfect. It's time for our reforging chat with us anytime about your thoughts on Twitter. Hey everybody, it's Aaron, who feels like the most stir-crazy member of the Mortal Realms right now, coming at you from an appropriate social distance deep underground in the Bollywood Studios. Mortals, things have gotten wild out there, yeah? We at the Mortal Realms hope everyone is staying safe and healthy, and uh, we thought what better way to introduce a little stability in your life, a little calm in these trying times, than by listening to a couple weirdos talk about made-up fantasy stories. Uh, to catch everyone up, in case you haven't heard, Davey and I do monthly mini story phases called Pocket Realms and then release them on the Patreon for our free guild members. And every few months, we package some together and release them on the Mortal Realms feed, and that's this. Uh, but if you don't feel like waiting, head over to themortalrealms.com slash Patreon and become a patron today and get them in your email as soon as they're uploaded, just like magic. And if you're listening to this, I bet uh, I bet you like a little magic, don't you? The second batch of episodes here actually are a little different, as you might have already surmised, because we started bringing in guests from the larger Mortal Realms family to serve as mediators? Peacemakers? Uh, Just to make sure Davey and I don't come to blows. It's a volatile relationship we have. Uh, But at any rate, I think we're going to keep trying it. Um, And beyond that, uh, I don't really have any other news to share other than that we're still here. We're still kicking, still trying to put out our shows while folks are stuck at home. And uh, we hope that you're all well and that we'll meet you on the other side of this when it's all over.
Enjoy the rest of the Pocket Realms. See ya. Welcome to the Pocket Realm, a Mortal Realms short story phase. Grab your hammer so we can clear a path through the chaos and forge our own narratives in the Age of Sigmar. Your allies through the Realm Gates this episode are... I'm Davey, and I no longer need keys. I just punch every door I come up to. <laughs> and I'm Josh, and I'm here to explore the rusted roots of this new Stormkeep. <laughs> and I'm Aaron, and I've been on pause, but I'm shaking off the rust. Hey, everybody. How's Hello. it going? Great. Just fine. Ooh, I like it. Um, today, uh, we've got another guest, dear listeners. We're, we're on a roll here, two in a row. Um, we figured we'd bring on more and more of your favorite Mortal Realms content creators uh, so that we, they could talk about some of the books that they uh, have enjoyed reading. And by books, I mean short stories. And so today we have Josh from Dogs of Warcry fame. Um, you know him, you love him. Hey, Josh, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. We're glad to have you. Um, it would be it'd be really weird if one of those things weren't true. That's uh, true. <laughs> very very awkward. <laughs> so let's talk about maybe what we've been up to recently. Um, I'll lead with Josh. Josh, what I ask folks is if you could tell us either uh, the last hobby you did, the last game that you played, or the last book that you read. Besides, I guess this book that would be boring if you talked about that. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, to give us an insight, uh, what what, you, what you've been doing? Sure. No, actually, I finished up uh, Prophet's Ruin last night from C. L. Werner, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. Another Cahadran story. Yeah. And uh, second in the series, but yeah, a good book. I enjoyed it. It's uh, introduced some new insights into the mortal realms. Okay, so. cool. Um, I did. I got my hands on. It. I just haven't read it yet. We read um, Overlords of the Iron Dragon. Like, man, so long ago. So I. I feel like I'd want to have to refresh myself before I picked it up. But I, one day, I think I, I will get back yeah. to it. Um, Davey, how, Davey, how about yourself? What you been up to? Uh, in preparation for our main story phase, I've been reading the Battle Tome, Overlords of Battle Tome. That's been a lot of fun. And my uh, non-hobby book was uh, Good Scent from a Strange Mountain, which is uh, perspective of Vietnamese and Vietnamese Americans. Very cool set of short stories. Yeah, very cool. Um, what have I been doing? Um, so I've been, like I always talk about, I've been filing terrain like nobody's business. I'm trying to get through all the different war cry sets. And so uh, the Sigmar terrain, Josh, what's that called? The storm? Yeah. Uh, the Shattered Stormfall? Shattered Stormfall, uh, all complete and assembled. Um, then I did the Azerite Ruin terrain. What's that called, Josh? <laughs> I think it's the Azerite Ruin. Oh, nice. <laughs> all right. Well, I did that one too. That one's perfect. And now I'm working on the, the graveyard terrain. Josh, what's that one called? <laughs> Corpse Rack, Corpse Rack Mausoleum. Yep. Okay. So I'm in the middle of that. It's sitting right there. Um, and so uh, I will burn through that. And after that, I'll work on the starter set terrain. And then I'll, I don't know, work on challenge quest models. But uh, I'm in the zone. It, um, I'm stoked to kind of have like a a contained um, like goal to get all these things done for no reason. Because Lord knows I'll never play on them. Um, but once those are complete, I'll have a certain sense of accomplishment and that's all i that's all i strive for guys mm. um in, internal and accolades sweet yeah so uh we today are not here to talk about terrain uh, we're here to talk about short stories um and in this case karadran overlord short stories uh because we are tackling a, a little ditty called beneath the rust by graham lyon um this uh, story came out relatively recently as a as a cyber monday uh type story and we figured it was a good uh good place to jump in because we have Mr. KO here along with Davey who's also a big KO player as well but mm -hmm. we thought it was a perfect match for and Paul uh, for and Eric. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, but I mean, we can't have them on all Eric the Earth. shows. Uh, people would get sick of them. Um, but before we get too much farther, let's, let's just jump right into the story phase and we can, we can talk about it. The story phase. In the story phase, we delve into the stories, characters, creatures, and environments of the Nine Realms. 
the story. An expedition beneath the rusted wastes of Shaman leads to danger and tragedy as malign and influence works on the Caradron overlords exploring the twisted tunnels. At the very least, least this one does describe the story well. There's been a rash of ones that <laughs> don't line up with what the, the tale is about, but I feel like that one covers it. Yeah, so uh, Beneath the Rust, um, I'm excited to chat about it. And I guess we could start with why, why are we uh, reading this one other than the fact that I think it was maybe... I think maybe the most recently released at the time, at the time of this recording, um, short story. Um, but for me with the battle tome coming out, uh, what I figured that'd be perfect timing to, to jump on this one and correlate those different releases. Um, I feel like everybody's in that KO mood right now. It's palpable. Were you excited to read this one, uh, Josh? Yeah, no, definitely. As you said, the battle tome coming out, a lot of, uh, new KO stories, books releasing. It's a great time to kind of Suck up all the fluff if you can. Sure. Yeah. Tis the season. Uh, what do you think, Davey? Yeah, same deal. I think uh, kind of as soon as it was available, I, I took a read. Uh, short stories are always good for a quick little uh, run through it and not have to, you know, be locked down on any one story for a while. Yeah, too true. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So then let's, since we're in our spoiler-free session, everyone, don't worry about the spoilers. Let's let's rattle off some of our, our facts and figures, the, the W's of these of these tales. Um, and let's start with the when. So wh- when do we think this story takes place? Anybody got any thoughts? Yeah, I flagged this pretty early on. Uh, the There's uh, early interactions with Stormcast, and it uh, specifically mentions that they had uh, arrived in recent decades and have been pushing pushing back the uh, forces of the ever chosen uh, which is which is clearly a jump back from where we're used to being uh, I think we established that the this uh, city of secrets is about a hundred years afterwards so this is this is probably still right in the realmgate wars maybe late realmgate wars era and uh, not uh, not maybe many more precisely uh, targeted than that but uh, we know that the overlords didn't pop up right away. Uh, they didn't make themselves known immediately in the Realm Gate War, so it's got to be somewhere late in that whole sequence. Very of smart of them, I might add. Uh, good yeah. move. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it does say something to the effect of like the Realm, Realm Gate Wars or the, the Stormcast had recently appeared in, in recent decades, so it definitely could be in the um, within that Realm Gate Wars uh, mm-hmm. era. Um, anything yep. you want to add, Josh? No, I agree. And, and uh, most of the stories aren't quite as clear about the time frame, so this mm-hmm. one it, it did kind of say, yeah. This is it. This is where we are. So it's- I guess the one caveat I would say is that uh, recent decades for you and I is, you know, two decades ago, but for uh, Duarden, it might be more than that. So mm-hmm. let's see. Mm-hmm. That's the only way I can pretend Paul's here and say something about unreliable narrators. <laughs> um, <laughs> Even when it doesn't apply. Yeah, mm-hmm. tr- true. Um, and it, f- furthermore, I, we find ourselves sort of in a unique position that we don't find ourselves in all that often is that this actually ends up being sort of a, um, a, prologue to another story that unfortunately i haven't read yet though i think maybe josh has um that's one of the um what is it the the code Code of the the skies skies, yep of of the um the novella series and so because of that like it's it seems as if it was maybe purposely put back in time a little bit so that the more recent novella could occur in a more recent recent time but it's uh I don't know, fun or a benefit of the fact that the story is moving forward is that we can continue to look backwards and tell stories in those previous eras. Like there's still uh, opportunity. We have ripe opportunity to tell stories from any number of timeframes as the time moves forward. It just opens up that window wider and wider as to when we can tell Mm -hmm. tell tales uh, in the age of Sigmar. So what a, what a, what a delight. 
Cool. Let's move on to the where. Where does this story take place? Um, Josh, what do you think? Where where are we taking place here? Well, you know, definitely know it's in the Rusted Wastes, which is part of Shimon. And uh, they even state that it's on the shores of the Stratus Skull is the current current place where they're looking to build this storm keep. So it's kind of nice that they specified a particular area. And I didn't have time to look at a map of Shimon to see if it's actually on there or not. But uh, I was going to wonder. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't look either. But I wonder if it's one of those standard, you know, uh, you know, mapped, mapped right, out, where the core out. regions, or if it's a little farther out or not. But, yeah, yeah. Um, Dave, you got any thoughts about the the where? Uh, only that I am fairly certain as I'm going through the latest Overlords uh, arm, uh, battle tome that uh, Stratus Skull is mentioned in passing at some point in there. So okay, cool. This is not the only time we've heard of it. Um, real quick question. Is either Stratus or Skull a term for a geographical feature? I don't know what that what that means. Yeah, Stratus usually just means lines, like stratified layers mm-hmm. if you're looking at geolog- geological terms. For, for me, I was assuming uh, since it was talking about the shores of i was thinking of it as a straight like the you know some narrow waterway okay mm-hmm. yeah and i guess that makes sense yep, yep. um and they do make it a point in the story to mention that this area isn't dead center or you know something similar to the realm of uh, metal but rather it's a little a little bit off the beaten path it, it's maybe not it's not the realm's edge but it's not so not also in the safest spot of the realm it's you know somewhere in between which mm-hmm. means that it's there's opportunity both for like civilization but then also like the wild magic that could sort of occur um, in, the, in these, you know, crazy realms that our characters are inhabiting. So it's not too far one way or the other, um, which makes for, I think, mm-hmm. possible inter- interesting stories. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting, too, that they explained why they chose the location. You don't always get that either. But they talk about there being these lines of power and visibility to the Azurite uh, constellations so the Lord Ordnaters can evaluate and predict the future based on that assessment so yeah exactly. it's kind of cool it is neat all right let's move on to the uh to the who's the 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 important questions um to be asked so um who is our main character and i believe the only point of view character in this whole in this whole story so so bori craglin is um is an endron rigger and uh, she's there with some other colleagues uh some arcnauts and uh and uh, other ko to help the stormcast build this uh, keep evaluate the foundations but she's the main character and uh as she said everything's from her point of view and her interactions with the the arcnauts and and uh, her colleagues are always from her perspective yeah uh i what i was enjoyable is i think right when i first read the name i didn't immediately realize that it was a female uh, mm-hmm. lead because um, Bori, I don't know. Um, so it was nice to have a, a female lead for a Duarden. Is this the first female KO that you guys have encountered, whether in, in stories or do they talk about, about them in the battle tone much? Yeah. Um, I'm not as well read, so I'm not going to say one way or the other. But Yeah, I know of all the KO stories, she is the, I think, the first character that you really interact with. Yeah. And they, they show up a little bit more in the more recent battle tome, mm-hmm. uh, which is... Uh, which is also cool, but uh, yes, this having read this before the battle tome, uh, yeah, I would say as far as I know, it's the first uh, female overlord that we've had a, a as a character so far. And she's so I, I don't even know the units all that much. So she's an Endrin rigger. So there's a balloon on her back. Is she the the fixer one or the other one? The fixer one. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So they've got the more mechanical tools and like, and I guess that comes yeah, up. Yeah, the rivet much. guns and yeah. the saws. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So I, I know that difference anyways. As you guys can tell, I have not read the Battle Tome yet for our future story phase episode, but we'll get there soon. So excellent. And so yeah, she's surrounded by a few other cast of characters, 
obviously it wouldn't be much of a story without them. There's a, a Stormcast Night Venator that she that they're sort of hired by and they're working with. She's got her Arcanaut captain and um, another Endrin rigger. Um, but we'll t- we'll talk about them more when we get to the uh, the spoiler side of things. Um, mm-hmm. Any other what's that we want to include about this story? Spoiler free before we dive right into it. No, it's pretty straightforward. We we uh, jump to this story pretty quickly, so I think we can move along. Cool. Um, before we do, let's do a quick, I think we forgot to do it last time, but just a real quick uh, spoiler-free type recommendation. Is this something that we think folks could read who, who would maybe benefit from reading it? Just just real fast, how did how did we feel? Gut, gut reactions before we do a real uh, review at the end. Sure. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a nice short, really short story, and it gives a little bit of insight of the first KO Stormcast interaction. So it's a unique perspective from that, that and, and how does the Stormkeep start? I thought it was kind of cool from that perspective. Hey, David, what do you think? Same thing. Uh, there's not a lot of point of view of overlords. Uh, often they'll show up as uh, sort of side characters or the transportation for the main characters and, and other things. So uh, there's not much there. And like Josh said, it's a small time investment. So I don't think you'd regret it if you want a little bit more overlords uh, faction reading in your life. Okay, cool. Um, I, I get that impression as well. Uh, I would add maybe if you wanted to dip your toe um, into some like KO reading, I mean, there's not a lot of opportunities, but given that the story is short um, and that it also leads into maybe a little bit of a longer tale in that, um, in that novella, maybe you, you could always start with this one to see if, you know, you, you jive with the characters or the, the race. Um, and then if you did end up liking it, you could then move on to the, that uh, novella. Or if you've already read the novella, I feel like it, it wouldn't take much to then have to read this one to get some more background on mm-hmm. uh, this character. Um, again, if you've read other KO books or your KO player, there's um, you'll, maybe you don't learn too much about the KO as a whole, though. I mean, there's plenty of references to the the code and, and any sorts of things here. Um, it it flavors um, that race uh, a little bit and gives you that little little taste. So, uh, neat. Any other thoughts before we start spoiling this story? Not here. Nope. Cool. Let's do it. In the spoiler phase. Uh, awesome. This is my favorite phase, guys. I don't know if you know that. Um, let's let's start at the top. Um, Walk me through the beginning. Where are we at? Who are we dealing with? How, how does how does the scene open? Josh, hit me. Sure. So the scene starts um, on the surface, the rusted wastes, and uh, the uh, KO are there to help start the foundation for the stormkeep. And so they've rigged the drill cannon up to start putting some foundations in and almost fall into some tunnels that exist underneath. Which I didn't totally follow here. Like I, I mean, I, it was just a throwaway line, but I was like, how much modifications do we have to do to a cannon to turn it into a like actual excavating? Yeah, tool? I don't know. You know, because they <laughs> shoot this drill, which goes flying through the air. So maybe you attach it somehow. You like solder it to. Oh wait, so is the drill that normally the projectile that comes out of it? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So it drills through units. Well, they used to drill through multiple models and okay. units potentially, but yeah. So, so yeah, it's an interesting question as Davey points out is how do you retrofit that? Maybe when like it it wants to shoot it, but just someone's on the other end with a chain, just holding onto it. So it's still spinning. Like it's, it's got rifling somehow, but it just doesn't go anywhere. Right. Right. You solder it to the spinning device. Or maybe just get into like a nosedive. Get a head of steam and then shoot it directly <laughs> down. Well, somebody was holding it because they almost fell through, oh, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> true, true. Um, yep. But uh, so what do, they, what do they find, I guess, uh, in this digging? Um, Josh, if you want to keep going. Yeah, no, they find some extensive tunnels. Um, very uh, widely spread and, and long, they, mm-hmm. they kind of say. And uh, man may, or they, they assume Dwarden made. Mm-hmm. Um, and have been there for quite a while. So. Yeah, yeah. They didn't, it didn't seem naturally occurring, but they were intentionally. Um, 
put down there. And so they, they discover these things. And so they're having these conversations with the Stormcast. I think the only Stormcast we end up talking to is this, um, the guy I mentioned before, this Ferrum Drakesbane, mm-hmm. who is a Night Venator, which is the bow and star eagle guy, right? With the yep, wings. That is um, correct. Yep, yep. So uh, basically, yeah. you've, got, you've got these two, I don't know, capable sides, one sort of hiring the other, saying, all right, well, we should probably go explore it because we can't build um, our... Uh, Stormkeep, is it just a Stormkeep or that yeah. they're trying to build here? I don't know mm-hmm. if it was a whole city or not, which, I mean, a city probably will creep up around a Stormkeep anyways. Um, like, we, we, we can't in good conscience build this thing without fully exploring these tunnels underneath. <laughs> Seems <laughs> legit, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Are you with that reasoning? Yeah, and so, like, I believe, didn't the Stormcast say, like, no, we'll, we'll just go take, we'll just go look, or maybe I'm making this up. I, I got the impression that the Stormcast were like, no, we'll take care of it, but the, the KR were like, no, 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 we'll come too. Like, it, it yeah. was sort of a jockeying for like, well, I, how about we all come, huh? Let's, yeah. just, let's just have a, a an expedition, an well, adventure. It was, a, it was a bargaining chip too, because oh, yeah. she added twenty uh, percent extra oh, to right. the cost. Yeah, yeah too true. And so no, she's, no, she's, she's from she's from Varignar, <laughs> and she has the uh, the specific directive to uh, improve relations with this. Uh, I guess specifically the storm host, the Sigmarite Brotherhood. Yeah. Um, with the with the you know if they're going to establish a storm keep here, then uh, they're probably anticipating some amount of civilization springing up around it, and you can trade with that. So. Sure can. Uh, I got two questions. Have we seen? I don't think I've seen the Sigmarite Brotherhood before. Is that a new one? Yeah, I hadn't seen that. It was it's um it kind of a little bit of a spoiler. The Code of Skies relates with the same particular character, oh. so that was the first time I saw it. But okay. this is I haven't seen it in any other publications. Yes. Gotcha. And then second question, uh, which one is the Barak Nar one? What, what, what is their That's claim the, to fame? Uh, the first city, um, or a city of the first on? Yep. I can't remember. Um, so they're, they're the, uh, the steering hand on the, uh, uh, on the overall guiding force for the, uh, overall the, the, the biggest and, and, uh, wealthiest of the sky, sky ports. Is that where the top hat guy comes from? Yep. It is. Yeah. Lord Magnate. I think I'll just call him Top Hat Guy, if that's sure. okay with you. <laughs> so uh, that is what they decide to do. So they um, head down this tunnel, which ends up being pretty steep, um, but it must level off at some point because they, they end up walking. Like they start rappelling down, if I remember correctly, but they have to mm-hmm. hit the ground because eventually the folks are, are just hoofing it um, down these down these tunnels. Um, I'm trying to think, did they talk about anything of, of, wor- of worth before they get into a big old fight? I don't think so. No, we learn no. anything at this point? Yeah, no. I, I, the, the small comment about not being carried by the Stormcast and insisting they rappelled down was pretty funny, I oh, thought. Oh, yeah, was, true. Yeah. Um, be no dwarf throwing here. Huh? <laughs> Throw me. Don't tell the elf. Um, yeah, no, and, and, and I mean, they're used to being on lines and things like that. So, like, not having ground beneath their feet is, you know, almost their their preferred terrain. So, I yeah, don't blame them for doing so. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, they let's jump ahead because they're navigating these tunnels. Um, I don't think the atmosphere is affecting them quite yet. We'll get to that, but um, they are, I don't know. Wait, they send some scouts out ahead. That's what it was, right? So they send mm-hmm. the prosecutors. Um, I think. Yeah. The prosecutors out ahead and they come roaring back saying, Hey, the, uh, the battle's been joined up ahead. Um, we found some inhabitants who we find out very soon uh, end up being this, these core blood corn blood bound might just be reavers. If I remember correctly, yep. I don't remember reading anything blood about blood reavers. warriors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the whole retinue basically rushes on ahead to go um, fight off these, these blood bound it. The flyers obviously get there ahead, ahead of like the foot sloggers, the Arcanauts um, behind, uh, behind the main um, force. Uh, it's throughout this process. We're sort of introduced into um, Herrick steel fist. Who's actually the Arcanaut captain. It's very gruff. He's very 
it's very Duarte-esque. I mean, he's mm-hmm. very the quintessential um, bristly and, and sort of rough around the edges, and he's very proud of his um, forces. And so he's leading them um, up into the uh, up into the fray while um, we've got our engine riggers who are floating just a little bit above the ground. But obviously, we're in a tunnel and they get, can't get too uh, high above the fray, um, so they're getting slashed at by you know these reavers. You've got your uh, prosecutors and um, vent. Venator, yeah, the Venator, mm-hmm. shooting arrows and throwing hammers, um, and so it becomes clear that uh, the Bloodbound, even though they outnumber our, our good guys, our order guys, I should say, um, they are no f- are not able to withstand the fury, and they are beaten back pretty pretty quickly. I don't even think with any real casualties or uh, no uh, some wounds, yeah. But yeah, but no casualties. Sure, a lot of a lot of Bloodbound getting shot in the face with Rivigans, right? Yep, yep, yep. Um, so we've cleared out the Bloodbound. What happens next? Like what? What? How, how do our how do our uh, characters uh, feel or, or um, interact after after this? So there's some where the the prosecutors and the uh, and Mala kind of go herring off after after the last remnants, and then, uh, turns out Mala goes missing. The prosecutors didn't see it happen, and during the fight and after the fight, people are snapping and uh, like know, the jets and the sharks. Yep, exactly. But also they're uh, angry at each other um, and uh, shouting at each other. Uh, and Drake's Bane kind of figures out that uh, I think it's the malign influence of this area, that uh, there's something that the God of Rage uh, is uh, has some aura that's affecting the, the uh, Duarden in here. And they're like, well, why doesn't it affect you? He says, well, I'm Stormcast. I'm uh, I've been I've been forged to fight this sort of thing. So. Yeah, I'm, I mean, simply put, I'm just better than you. So, eesh, awkward. Don't make me say it. Um, yeah, and so to the to the Mala thing. So this Mala character, another Edrin Rigger, ends up as we find out is that um, Herrick Steelfist's uh, partner, like that we we uh, learned throughout this, I don't know, life this partner. Yeah. yeah, yeah, life partner exactly. And so um, obviously he has a vested <laughs> vested interest in her safety. Um, but then also the main character, that you know, the POV, um, uh, Bori, uh, also we find out that she's sort of a lifelong friend. So this this Mala is very very important to like I don't know the, the leadership uh, of the the KO. Um, not yeah, if she and, wasn't like they wouldn't want to go after her, but still. And go I would ahead. say that uh, what I thought was cool, just that there was a small touch here with the, using the term life partner. When you think about like a, such a mercantile race as the overlords, like partner is kind of a cool uh, term to use there instead of some more traditional uh, spouse sort of terminology. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm going to start uh, calling my wife my business partner. Mm, let me know how it goes. Yep, I'm sure she will love it. Uh, thank goodness she doesn't listen to this. Um, and it, it, the reason I even bring her up again um, is we're noting because her running off and sort of chasing down the bloodbound isn't necessarily within um, her. Like that's not something she'd normally do. It, it seemed to surprise um, her friends and family that she would go go do so. So she s- seemed to really get caught up in the moment, in the bloodbath, and the violence. And so mm-hmm. that's another example of like, well something's affecting us um, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't normally be acting this way in the same way that those KO who have been left behind um, are at each other's throats and, and um, all sorts of tood getting thrown around uh, by these, by these folks. I I do think the author did a good job of like inserting, you know, small annoyances or, you know, the mentioning on getting a little frustrated because they're so slow or, you know, just Mm kind of slowly building up some of the mood and and the influence instead of just overt anger right away. I Agreed. thought that was good. Yeah, no, I, I think so too. Um, so obviously it, it comes to the conclusion that we need to go, we need to go find her. Um, we're not, no man left behind sort of thing or no um, Mala left behind at least. And uh, they think that they need to go um, find her. Uh, doesn't, 
uh, doesn't Ferrum like do something to like abate the the anger for a little bit? What does he do? Yes, I don't, it doesn't really explain what he does. He, he like tells them to stop, and they feel at least Bori feels this calming influence. But it doesn't seem, necessarily seem to affect the Arknots or Malik. But. So I found whenever someone's really angry, if you just tell them to calm down, instant solution. <laughs> uh, they just calm right down. Even better if you yell at them to calm down. That's <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right, right. Um, from, a, from a position of authority, of condescension, maybe, uh, you're really out of control. You need to calm it down, friend. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so no, we had some of that, too. Where, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm made better, so it doesn't affect me. And then even one of the dwarves says, oh, you think you're better than us. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but it... I, I, to some degree, it, it gives him a little bit of a window to, to go trudging down the hill and, and try to figure out what um, happened to Mala. Uh, and so that's what they do. They, they head, head down this tunnel, through this tunnel. Um, it turns out there's a whole bunch of different side paths that lead to dead ends that the prosecutors are kind of um, exploring here and there. But we realize that, they, no, there's this main tunnel that we're uh, traversing down. Um, but they, I'll say they reach the end. And what do they find at the end of this tunnel? Uh, Josh's turn. All right. Well, they find a wall, a blank wall, and uh, they can't find any way past it. Um, Bori, uh, you know, searches it and tries to see if there's any sort of mechanical device that might open it, and she's unable to open it. They- Poor Bori. And that was the last they ever saw Amala. End <laughs> of story. No, David, you alluded to it before. What do they do? Uh, so, Herrick Steelfist gets frustrated and punches the wall and it opens and they're staring in amazement and uh, they conclude, oh, it needed anger to open it. So um, we could talk about it now. We can talk about it later, but David, how'd you feel about uh, this turn of events? Uh, I, I almost was kind of expecting something like this. I, I think like, I was like, well, there's going to be some way through and it's going to be corn specific. So it's either going to be blood or, or rage or something like that. We'll open it. Um, I don't know. I, uh, are you getting at, this seems like magic and corn doesn't like magic or no, I just more, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I always get the sense that you don't particularly like, um, I don't know, Deus Ex Machina isn't exactly what this is, but that sort of, oh, it was just punching a wall all along kind of thing. Yeah, uh, it was fine. It was, I don't know, a little goofy, but whatever. Okay, cool. Um, but yeah, punch punch the wall. It, it, I don't know, something slides open and the wall uh, gets out of their way, basically. And they find, it's like a big, like, not a throne room, like an altar room type thing. Yep, an altar. Um, yeah. Yep. And um, they open it up, and the Arconauts basically, as soon as they have that that opening, they come rush. They come rushing in. So mm-hmm. um, Herrick, that's his name. Yeah, Herrick. Herrick is like, all right, well, Mala's in there somewhere, and it turns out she's she laying is. on the altar. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he's like, oh, we got to go get her. Mm-hmm. And so they run off ahead um, before you know the rest of the, I guess um, I forget her name, Bori, and the other mm-hmm. um, Stormcasts are sort of have to trail them uh, uh, into this into this room. Um, and they probably should have waited because since we're from Bori's perspective, as she makes her way into this room, she sees that a, a fair number of the Arcanauts have fallen because there is a, a, a number of corn um, bloodbound in here, and there's a bit, you know a bloody fight, and uh, they they took uh, heavy losses. Very sad. That's what you get for rushing in instead of waiting for your backup. Mm-hmm. Um, what, I don't know, what happens What happens next, Davey? Where do we go from here? So th- they do end up seeing off the, uh, seeing off the Reavers. Uh, uh, Mala is saved off the altar, but then uh, Bori and Herrick uh, get mad at each other again. They're, they're, uh, uh, Herrick is lashing out saying, you know, she only got taken because of you, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and he actually ends up taking a swing at her. Um, and then, uh, Bori floats up and then he gets ready to shoot her. And then she throws her saw at him, but misses and hits the altar, which cracks open. And then, 
uh, bad, bad stuff starts to happen. Oh yeah. Um, is that, is there, are there rules in the game for throwing saws? I no. know. Uh, there should, I think there should be because apparently they can crack altars. What else can they crack? Skulls. It must um, have been spinning or something. Armor. You know, right. and just it's confusing because those saws are like bolted under their arm. I did not understand how this uh, <laughs> saw got yeah. thrown. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. mm-hmm. A traditional projectile saw. Um, yeah. So it cracks this altar, and who comes uh, leaping out or something? I don't know. Um, but. So it's it's obviously blood letter shaped, but do we think it's maybe a herald is is what it is? I'm trying. I was trying to figure out what the what the model was. Of right. What was coming, yeah, what and I'm not was. sure. Uh, but I had you know blood thirster came to mind. But oh, um, do you? Th- oh, even but it, big, didn't, it so? didn't describe wings, so yeah. I don't. I don't know. But. I was wondering. I can't remember what the heralds look like exactly, but I was wondering if that was the case. David, did you get a sense of what this thing was? Uh, I think like Josh, I was assuming this is just going to be a bloodthirster, but then the description matched, uh, but I wasn't too, I mean, there's a long history in GW books of demons, not totally matching what model is on. They can uh, yeah, match any number of shapes. So I, I think Harold is just fine to think of it that way. And the Stormcast just says it's a prince among its kind, but it doesn't really state. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yes, uh, but anyway, a wingless demon prince. Oh, okay, cool. That'd be neat too. Mm-hmm. Um, at any rate, very dangerous, uh, very scary, and uh, basically everyone needs to try and work together, quote unquote, to take this thing down because it's it's slicing through fools left and right. Um, everyone is uh, shooting at it. Um, the Stormcaster re- releasing, you know, loosing arrows and, and hammers, and it turns out like every half or you know a third of these these projectiles are even making it to the hide of this thing. The rest of them are just sort of dissipating in the air. So obviously it's got some magical protection, um, but Folks, it seems like we need to shake this sort of fugue, this anger state that we find ourselves in before we can take this down, because it also seems to be exuding this sort of anger as corn demons are, are prone to do. Um, and uh, Bori and Mala, who is sort of recovered now at this point, um, have to, are sort of flying around, they got their engines on their back, also trying to work, work together to take this thing down. Uh, it seems like nothing's really working. None of their uh, efforts are, are putting much of a dent in this, so they have to come up with a plan. Um, they've got to get creative as, uh, maybe KO are prone to do, uh, Josh, what do they decide they need to do to take this? Big well, guy down? Uh, the idea comes from, uh, an attack, you know, the demon attacks, uh, Bori at some point and hits her Endrin. And so she goes flying and the Endrin explodes. And, um, when she comes to Harak says, oh, the only thing that seemed to hurt it was your Endrin explosion. And so at that point they come up with the idea uh, let's overcharge Mala's Endrin and get it in there somehow and see if that does the work. Yeah, make a little bomb. Um, and so that they, uh, Bori starts ratcheting some dials and turning everything up to 11 um, <laughs> to make sure that this thing is going to blow any minute so they can make this really potent, uh, potent bomb. And then I think she initially is like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to have to take it and, and, uh, I'll be the one to do, you know, the, the bomb delivery system uh, to blow this thing up. I think there's an objection, like, no, I'll do it. No, I'll do it. No, I'll do it. Right. Um, but I think Bori wins out in the end, if you call that winning out to take the bomb and what, does, she, does she run it right in there? Does she throw it? I can't remember exactly what she does. But... Uh, she stumbles, I think, or, oh. you know, and she drops it. And then um, our, our friend from Drake Bain says, you know, I'm going to die, but I'll come back. So my sacrifice isn't as great as yours. And so he takes it and he runs over there. I forgot all about that. And that also is one of the most more touching moments of this book. And how could I, how could I forget <laughs> it? Um, but yeah, he, he picks it up and, and kamikazes it into uh, the, the demon. Um, and uh, that, that wraps up this story. What a nice little tale. No, uh, David, what happens next? 
it, it does not take out this demon entirely, but it creates an opening. And then uh, the overlord's like, all right, let's do it. And so they pile on the pile on with the opening fire, uh, charging forward. Uh, Bori's in with uh, her saw. She jumps out of the way of this axe that's flinging all over the place or uh, getting swung all over the place. Uh, and in horror, it uh, about chops Mala in half, which was a, kind of a shocking moment that I was not expecting in this story. And doesn't it also first go at, I mean, doesn't it also, it looks like it's going to hit Herrick first and then she yep. Mala pushes him out of the way. So yep. um, also another moment of sacrifice. So maybe this is, okay, so maybe this is the most touching moment of the book. And then uh, the Stormcast guy is number two. But um, <laughs> yeah, so she t- she takes the blow and is, yes, almost chopped in half. Ouch. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't know how she's going to recover from that one. Because um, she doesn't. Uh, Josh, what happens next? <laughs> well, both both Bori and uh, Herrick get extremely upset because mm-hmm. Mala's dead. And they both charge in at the Bloodthirster as it collapses on them from, from the blows and simultaneously pierce its heart with both their weapons. Oh, yeah. Very, so, very, very dramatic. Yeah, um, and then it starts to crumble in on itself and disappear. Yeah, exactly. And I was joking before, now this is finally, the the, the demon has been uh, defeated. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, like the anger permeating this space, does it does it noticeably go away despite the fact that folks are still angry at each other? It, yeah, it doesn't really say. Because um, that's maybe a question I was left with at the end. Because now that this demon's disappeared, uh, mm-hmm. It turns out there are still still bad blood or b- bad feelings. I don't know a better way to put it between Herrick and Bori because Herrick very clearly blames Bori now for Mala's death, um, mm-hmm. which is maybe a stretch, but he's obviously grieving. And so, I mean, so is Bori too. But the point being that like, if it wasn't for you, we wouldn't have found ourselves in that. Po- if it wasn't for your plan, we wouldn't have found ourselves in that position. And then Mala wouldn't have been chopped up basically. And so he stomps off with what's left of his forces are at, it might even just be him at this point, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, never to really speak to her again, if we want to fast forward a little bit. And I couldn't tell if his reaction was purely grief or if there was still a per- like a, a little bit of lingering anger in the air or whatever you want to call it. D- David, did you get a sense one way or the other? Uh, I mean, so it specifically says that uh, the uh, venom in his, his voice was uh, worse even when worse than even when the uh, influence was was on them so i think it's implying that most of this is at least not coming from whatever rage influence these tunnels have and it's uh coming mm-hmm. but uh i mean this sort of grief reaction i think is totally understandable so i not easy to deal with but i, I you'll see this as even in non-fantasy settings people get angry uh for what at the outside looks like a not rational reason so i oh I'm, sure i'm down right. with it when I think because of like the juxtaposition of like the rage from before, like it makes this land a little bit harder. If, if like the rage isn't still like there to show mm-hmm. like, you know, I can be even, even madder than when corn had his hands on me right. um, by this, you know, um, personal uh, experience. So yeah. and when the altar breaks, they do talk about the, the chaos runes slowly snapping out of existence. Yeah. So, so that implies that maybe the demon brought all of it into itself. So when they kill the demon that, they kind of dissipated the effect. Yeah, quite possibly. Um, interesting, interesting stuff. Um, and so from here, I think it sort of shifts. They don't explicitly call it epilogue, but it sort of shifts into epilogue mode. Um, the The relationship between Bori and Herrick never really recovers. Um, uh, Bori then decides that uh, she's had her fill of engine rigging, I guess, because it reminded her of her um, of best friend yeah. and maybe more than best friend a little bit. Uh, and we'll talk about that. Um, Mala, because she's constantly reminded um, every time, you know, she 
walks those halls of the school that she was trained in and reminds her reminds her of Mala. So um, she decides to hang up her bubble. I'm sure it has a real name. Um, and in a weirdly delivered uh, explanation, she thinks that, you know what, maybe I'll be a captain one day or an admiral one day. And then end, end of book, um, which uh, mm-hmm. was kind of a clumsy way to deliver that. But I understand why, because it's setting up the, the next book. But uh, that, I think, is the end. Do we miss anything? No, no. They essentially says she goes back and pours her work into building the defenses for the storm keep oh, yeah. and then and then delivers that statement like yeah no i'm not gonna be an engine anymore after this and doing regular so done and done david did we miss anything no i don't believe so cool man we are so good at this all right um that is the story how about we talk about how about we talk about some things um some interesting interesting tidbits i like talking about things uh, and i like talking about stuff and together we're unstoppable. Um, sort of mentioned it before and now, now we can dive right into it. So it becomes clear in this story that uh, Mala and Bori, which is to say the two engine riggers, um, are maybe, it could be one-sided, but it seems like more than more than friends. You know, it might only be in Bori's head. I guess it's not really explicitly said, but mm-hmm. uh, it sounds like she has more than just friendly feelings uh, to this other character. And so to that, I ask, is this the first love triangle that we have seen in the Mortal Realms? Well, I haven't seen any others, but I haven't read a lot of the books yet. So. Sure. Well, join us. <laughs> Have you seen many love triangles, Davey? And what's it mean for the mortal realms? Have we reached um, uh, romance uh, novel level uh, here? Are we going to see a lot more of that in the in Black Library? Uh, n- probably not. <laughs> uh, Darn it. I was racking my brain trying to think if there was something in there. It's certainly not one that, certainly not one that was central to the plot of a story. I mean, I think that was sort of, a core piece of this story uh, was that that tension, uh, how it was escalated by the uh, the rage aura down in the tunnels. So um, it provided a lot of the uh, motivation and fuel for interactions between some of the only named characters that we actually have in this particular story. Sure. And um, when we talk about like Herrick's attitude towards Bori, it's not just he's suffering loss, but like he, he has someone to direct his anger at that maybe though that, I don't know, that anger has already been brewing long before the events of this story. So um, that also seems to make sense. It's in line with what we, what we see in his sort of reactions to things here. Um, very noteworthy. Uh, this is the the first time I've seen something like that. Well, and I, I think it's also worth, uh, worth noting that there's a, a same sex uh, attraction or relationship here, uh, which is, I don't know that it's the first we've seen of that, um, but it's it's something at at the very least that uh, uh, Games Workshop in their in their background and their I, just recently uh, as far as representing women and representing uh, other other genders and other sexual orientations, uh, I think they're opening up a lot more than they used to. And I, I uh, it's not always done like it's sometimes a little bit clunky. Like maybe it was a little bit here, not not bad, but uh, just having it having it in there, you know, uh, people of all kinds want to be able to see themselves in the fantasy game that they're playing. Uh, and so I appreciate that. Uh, even if it's, uh, just sort of circumstantial to the story. Yeah. No, I think we saw one other, I remember reading another book and I don't recall which one it was where there was a same sex relationship, but it, again, it wasn't central to the theme of the book or anything, but it was, it was a nice mention. And again, as David points out perfectly, it's nice to see them incorporating other aspects of the world and life. And that, yeah, this is similar to ours in some ways. Yeah, Sure. And I'm not disagreeing with you, but I don't, I don't know that I would call this 
clunky per se, and I'm not saying you were saying it was clunky, but like if you were to substitute a different relationship that wasn't a same sex relationship, it wouldn't have really changed the way things played out. So because mm-hmm. of that, it, it was, I, I think it was pretty smoothly integrated that, into the that's story. That's actually a great point. I, I will withdraw the clunky comment. That's, that's not what I was shooting for. I think I, I think I'm applying that to maybe a, a different element of the story, but you're, you're hundred percent right. Like that, uh, and that's almost maybe the best way to have it there is like, they did not make a big deal out of it. Right. Like it was mm-hmm. just, mm-hmm. it was, it was part of the story, but it was, it wasn't like everyone was like, Whoa, Hey, check this out. You know, so yeah, look at me. Um, we're doing that, but, uh, but it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's cool that, uh, that the author did not. Um, and that, uh, I hope I think in a good that, way. Yeah, no, I think, I think, uh, helps it normalize and feel, make it just part of the uh, fabric of things more than uh, if it was really called attention to. How about any other, any, any other fun thoughts about the story that we want to bring up? Josh, you got anything you want to chat about? Uh, yeah. So I listened to one of the other uh, story phase Oof. books recently. I'm sorry. And, um, one of, yeah. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> and and uh, you guys had a, a nice discussion about um, how, it might have been Thieves Paradise or a different one, but we talked about how the the story's advanced enough that we have more space that GW and the authors can go back and they can incorporate and build the history based on what we know now, like the storm vaults introducing them into other areas that you didn't necessarily have that information before. And I thought this was another example of that where they introduced the Lord Ordenotter, which we didn't see until Malign Portents, which takes much place much further after this time period. But they use that information to say, oh, we're building the Stormkeep here so the Lord Ordinators can see this, you know, the constellations. And, and so it was, it was kind of, again, you know, one of those cases where they filled in the history a little bit based on what we know now. Agreed. And it's, it's nice that we can logically insert some of that more current stuff into the history where, where it applies or where, where it makes sense. Exactly. And the demigrists don't just come running out of a forest. I don't know where one day. <laughs> I got one. Um, how... And I guess we talked about it a little bit before, but maybe we build on it. How, how do we feel about the description of the anger in, mm-hmm. in, in the tunnels? Um, uh, did the anger strike true to you? Did you uh, understand and believe the the corn effect on our, our characters in, in the tunnels? Sure. Uh, but partially because almost as soon as it started happening, I was like, oh, this is this is like corn influence going on. Uh, and that's our advantage of reading this from an outside perspective of, you know, people who have read a whole lot of games, workshop fiction, um, you, you, you can jump to some of these conclusions a lot faster than some of the characters can. Cool. Cause then we talk about our standard questions when what shape are the characters at the end? And I'm going to ask Josh about, um, Bori, because I know you have read the book that has followed this one. Davey, have you read, did you read, um, Code, Code of the, the Skies? Code of the Skies? I have not, but I'm literally downloading it right now. boy. Um, no, it's a good one. So, uh, is this story referenced at all? Does it inform the character of Bori in that later later book? Um, yeah. Does it does it ring true? Does it have that connection um, later? Yeah. On? Uh, and, um, and I talked to Paul a little bit about this too because um, at first I didn't necessarily realize this was a prequel until I read it, and I was like, oh, okay. So, but but yeah, in Code of the Skies, Bori and Herrick are characters that are also in that book, and there's this animosity, okay. and so you really don't know where it comes from. They kind of hint at it a little bit. But yeah, so I think this informs in terms of, you know, what was the situation and, you know, why is there that animosity there? Oh, so. awesome. Good. Good to hear. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I guess you mentioned uh, Herrick as well, which is, would have been my other question. Does he appear? But it sounds like he's still uh, mm-hmm. pretty angry and uh, over the, the loss of Mala, who obviously is now gone at the end of this tale. Um, and then just through 
jump back to something you said before. Uh, it sounds like that Stormcast, um, Ferrum, Drake's, uh, Drake's Bane. Drake's Bane. So it sounds mm-hmm. like he appears as well. Yes. Cool. And that's, mm-hmm. uh, I'm glad to hear that. I, I'm, I always find that a little bit interesting to have a character and then get to see them again after reforging and just see well, what's changed after the reforging. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to mm-hmm. that. Yeah, and, the, and the timeline is quite a bit farther along. I don't know how many years, but... Well, you'd have to be if she goes from like engine rigger and then giving up her title to then like reaching the rank. If I understand correctly, she's a, a captain or an admiral or something. So yep. um, that must, mm-hmm. I'm sure that doesn't happen overnight. Speaking of Ferrum Drakesbane, this leads me into my next question. Who is your dude or dudette? Uh, because Ferrum Drakesbane is my guy, man. Uh, I like him quite a bit. I liked his, uh, hey, calm down. Uh, I don't know if it was a speech or just the air about him uh, was kind of fun. It, I don't know. He, he seemed... Obviously, like an outsider, but in a familiar way. I don't even know how to describe it. But then, um, obviously, if you fast forward to the end, his his sacrifice is very logical. Like, look, no, look, I'm I'm just going to get reforged. It's totally cool. I'm 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 happy to blow myself up um, and s- instead of you guys. So mm-hmm. I just, that just um, rubbed me the right way. Uh, like, it's not common that you see the Stormcast sort of treat their um, immortality so not flippantly, but like with less, less regard, especially because they know like the ramifications of what's going to happen. But when facing down, look, I'm going to get reforged and maybe I'll be worse off for it. But like, you're literally going to die. Like that makes the choice pretty easy. Mm -hmm. Um, So to see that sort of acted out on the stage or in this case, in a short story um, uh, endeared me to that fella. And the fact that he comes back and that we get an opportunity to see maybe what he's like, or if he's changed after the reforging um, has made me more excited to read that book, which I may not have been as excited mm-hmm. to do so. So um, I probably, well, he does come back at the end of this story too. And oh yeah, I guess. Consoles yeah. the Bori and Hark separately, but true, that's, true. that's all yeah. we really get. And in terms didn't get, of insight. hopefully we get a chance to maybe get into a little bit more of it. Not as psyche. Right. Like we're not going right. to di- dive that deep, but um mm-hmm. The fact that he's still capable of consoling someone is, I guess, is already informative. Um, right. So that's pretty cool. Uh, Josh, who was your person? Uh, you know, I had a hard time picking here. And I think Ferrum Drakespain is oh, again, sorry, my I choice. No, I, I think he, uh, you know, shed the nice objective view because he wasn't influenced by Korn's, influ- you know, uh, anger. And, and uh, he's able to sacrifice himself willingly, like you said, logically decides, which you, have, you haven't really seen that before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think he also had the, the most... Uh, probably mature tactical outlook of all the different characters, but sure. again, that's probably Corn's influence, which is I was just gonna say in their coloring defense, that they weren't uh, on their best behavior, or <laughs> right? Like in best mindset, uh, to be enjoyed, right? So, uh, Davey, hit me. Not a lot to pick from here, uh, but I, I will actually go with uh, Herrick. Um, I like that he was he, you know, he was basically running all the red shirts in this uh, in this <laughs> uh, story. Um, but they're, they're his and, uh, he's independent, you know, refuses to be carried down. We're going to repel down. That goes in. And I don't know that I really like, uh, clicked anything, uh, with him until pretty late when, uh, he lashes out and it's this, you know, grief reaction, but he, he says like, this is, this is my life partner. This is the mother of my children. I was like, Oh, Ooh, right. He's got kids. Got kids. Mm -hmm. Like, and then that validated a lot of the, a lot of the sort of, uh, I don't know, it, it kind of brought it home a little bit more. So that's, uh, that's why I'll pick Herrick. Good pick, Davey. You always got, you always got the best choice. <laughs> well, I mean, after my choices, you've always got the best. <laughs> always the second best choice on the two person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, did we learn anything about the moral realms that we didn't know before? Uh, Josh, you wrote some, some options here. Hit me with some. 
Yeah. So, you know, I think we mentioned a couple, you know, like how they decide on where to put a storm keep. You know, sometimes they talk about the cities being built over Realmstone. And in this particular case, they talk about lines of power and view to the constellations with the plan in mind. So it was kind of interesting. And it doesn't really say what those lines of power are. Mm-hmm. So it kind of brings up the question of, you know, what, what else? We got ley lines in yeah. the realms or winds of magic. Sure. Yeah. Tell me, I want to read that story. What are these things? Yeah. yeah. Um, one thing, I, did I write this? I think I wrote it. Um, but the the, de- the degree to which the K were willing to help form some of these cities, and obviously they weren't doing it completely altruistically, but like um, that they could have a hand in the development of these, um, the development of, you know, Sigmar's expansion into the world. So like it was around this time when the KO were sort of released, which is also when we maybe were getting some of the first stories of the cities of Sigmar, that city's expansion, the, the seasons of war type of stuff. Um, and so... It was, I can't think of many examples of that, the KO having a specific like uh, involvement in that, but there's no reason why they couldn't. Um, they, I mean, they're technologi- technologically advanced and like that seems like they're uniquely suited to at least c- contributing on a engineering type level in addition to, you know, your iron welds arsenal and, and, and those folks. Um, so uh, to see their willingness, but then also like the, the compensation that kind of goes along with it was um, informative to me. So, I mean, very, very, it was even alluded to, it wasn't even really necessarily part of the story per se, but Mm -hmm. um, it it colored that uh, a little bit. Yeah, I think the alliance with Greywater Fastness and the Cities of Sigmar book is the the main example we knew. The new battle tome talks a little bit more about them helping other storm keeps and stuff like that. And that's kind of a recent development at the time, like, we weren't getting in a lot of it. So this is again, another example of sort of looking backwards and filling in some of that uh, knowledge, yep. knowledge gaps. Um, learn anything else? Well, in the story, they talk about that wall and, and Ferrum Dragsbane even states, so oh, sorcery is not attributed to corn, mm-hmm. but you know, his corn answers a lot of their prayers. So I thought it was, you know, they, it kind of overt tells us that yes, it's not really magic because corn doesn't do magic, but, uh, but it's still kind of highlighted these magical effects that corn priests can have. And even in game, they, they have some sort of abilities yeah, to that do that. That must but. have been another judgment for the slaughter priests. Yeah. Um, yeah. The one question I did have throughout the whole story is, you know, how did this corn altar end up down in these tunnels? Yeah. <laughs> but, and why? But maybe because of the ley line or whatever the lines yeah, are. Yeah, the exactly. lines of power perhaps, yeah. or, you know, the dwarves dug the tunnels and somehow this altar's down there. So yeah, sure, a lot sure. of questions left unanswered in that aspect. Sure, yeah. true. Um, it's about this time where we start talking about any recommendations for other stories that we should read, though. I think we did talk about some of them before, but let's let's put a finer point on it. Um, obviously, Code of Skies being the sequel to this, so that'd be a, another recommendation if you like this mm-hmm. particular one. Um, do you guys have any other KO books that you want to put a plug in for? Or other books in general, I guess? Well, Theo Werner's got his two Overlords of the Iron Dragon and then the sequel to that, Prophet's Rune. I've read the first, not the second. Um, if you are into your overlords, you'll get more there. And in that same series, there's a short story called Ship Rats, which involves the same characters, but it's a small story, kind of like this one. Just yep, yep. So, uh, yeah, if you re- want to read more KO stuff, th- those are your options there. Uh, before we wrap it up, let's jump into our, our maybe a fuller-fledged review. Um, what did we think about the book um, in a more complete uh, aspect? Uh, Davey, we'll go with you first. Yeah, so... Here was my thing. I, I think it must be difficult to write about overlords. I I think they they they're an interesting culture that we have not seen a ton of. Even in the battle tomes, the previous one and the current one, you know, they have those little uh, sort of narrative blurbs that they'll they'll put in. Uh, those are those are few and far between in the battle tomes. Uh, we had a, a couple novels, a novella, and a handful of short stories. Uh, 
I think they're just in an, I think they're just difficult to write for. Uh, my takeaway on this was that I, I felt like the overlord, the role of the overlords characters in here uh, could have been played by almost anybody. Like they, they didn't, but for a handful of things, it didn't feel like there was anything to make them essentially uh, a, a character an overlord. But maybe only a handsaw could have broken that altar, though. <laughs> Throne <Fair>. saw. Yes. <laughs> I, it just felt uh, like you could have uh, mad-libbed some of the specific weapons and stuff, and, and you wouldn't have noticed that it was uh, a different faction or something like that. And that that's not to take away. And then, and then some of the um, chaos faction, what they were doing felt like it was just kind of pulling from some tropes here and there. And it didn't feel clear. Like they're under here and then, Oh, now they've got an altar. And now they've, they dragged somebody away. It's one of the main characters is on the altar. So there's a lot of, a lot of things that were just sort of meeting expectations that I had for this kind of story. And then nothing that, you know, what I'm really craving in this is that more insight into how overlords work. And we got a, a little bit of that, a little glimpse here and there. Like I talked about, you know, uh, a partner, a life partner instead of a, a spouse. Like th- those are, those are the things that I'm, I'm really on the hunt for. And I say all this knowing that, you know, for instance, I really like Court of the Blind King, but I don't know a ton about the Ideneth Deepkin. Maybe people who are like really into them, into Ideneth liked it less be- and because, they were able to find the things that they thought didn't fit or, you know, whatever the case may be. Anyway, all that being said, it wasn't, it wasn't bad. It didn't quite do what I was hoping it would do. Uh, and so I will give it one out of two exploding endrons. <laughs> cool. Um, just real quick, a new podcast idea. If we somehow create Mad Libs for the stories that we, that we read. Um, so put a pin in that one. Um, a supplement. Yeah. Donate. Donate on the Patreon. If we reach a certain level, we'll do our, our Mad Libs, uh, Black Library stories. Um, Josh, give me a give me a review. Um, no, I think uh, I feel I felt very similar to Davey, where it was a it was a good story to read, but uh, it wasn't like super exciting, you know. And uh, I think it had some neat insights. So, you know, for me, it was like, oh, this is kind of what they're thinking about for the Stormkeep and some of the the history that they've added. But yeah, like Davey said, they. It could have been normal dwarves, and why weren't they normal dwarves? And who knows? But you know, in terms of KO aspects, they they needed the endrins to potentially damage the demon, so they used that magical effect. But um, but you know, and, and perhaps it's just because they the, the dwarven themselves, the KO, spent so much of the time angry that you really didn't get a whole lot of unique perspectives of character development. But yeah. it's also a, a strange decision, and maybe intentional to make them even more uncomfortable. But you took prosecutors, a night venator, Endrin riggers, and put them all in a tunnel where the flying was kind of not as big a thing, right? I remember, I remember thinking that, and I forgot to bring it up. But yeah, you literally took this airborne race uh, and took them out of their element, which seems like it could have been a very intentional, like, how do they behave when they're, you know, landlocked Mm -hmm. or, you know, underground. Um, But it's almost as if we would, we need more examples of them in the air to then see what, see the juxtaposition of them, like in the ground to see how important it is for their sort of freedom of flight, et cetera. Like, I don't, I haven't read enough of KO to know how hindering being in an underground tunnel actually is to their, you know, fighting style or, or what have you, which I guess is my own, my own shortcoming. Um, right, anything right. you want to add to your? Um, no, no. I mean, I think uh, I, I would still recommend it because it's a, it's a good prequel for or uh, Code of the Skies. But, uh, but yeah, if I had, you know, a variety of different choices, I'd probably choose a different short story that maybe fit that need a little bit more. I will say that I am 100% going to read Code of the Skies. So. Because you're addicted to the KO. Um, as the only non-KO player, it feels like sometimes in the whole world, um, 
how do I feel about the story? I think um, to echo what some of you guys have said in that it, it seems like uh, it was, the story was kind of a, a mechanism to tell, like to hit certain story beats. Um, it was, it was a way to uh, introduce, um, I don't want to diminish it by saying this, this isn't an insult when I say this, but a way to sort of deliver like the love triangle type story in that sort of interpersonal connection or like that, the relationship connection between these um, very, what are normally like logical, like Duarden, right? So throwing mm-hmm. them in the situation where um, they have to feel loss or there's, um, you know, partnerships or they're under the effect of this, you know, anger, whatever, or aura, where normally they seem very mechanical, logical, almost devoid of like emotion. So like mm-hmm. it, to sort of put them in a situation where they have to like sort of deal with their emotions, I think probably stands out as a fun way to do that. Um I guess I don't, again, I don't know KO well enough to know how normally they are devoid of emotion or how, uh, like capital, like focused on, you know, making money they are versus, you know, uh, having that connection with other people. Again, another shortcoming of my own knowledge and and reading more things like that might expand the, that breadth a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. so if that were the case, I think this maybe is a good, would be a good breath of fresh air compared to other KO stories where they, where you maybe do get to learn a little bit more about the mechanics of their, um, a society and this would maybe give you a different perspective but if this is like the only perspective you have it, it doesn't maybe inform chaos society as much as some folks might might like mm-hmm. but you know five years from now maybe again this is an important thing to read um i think you make a good point and uh paul and i were talking about the story and uh if you think about it okay this is as a prequel that it then i think it makes perfect sense you know if you if you read it as a standalone story uh, in it, which i i kind of went in with that expectation mm-hmm. um it didn't quite satisfy what i thought it was going to be but uh but after thinking about it going oh yeah this is a prequel to code disguise now it makes perfect sense because yeah. it set up those relationships and it's created that tension and helps provide the reasoning for the code of the skies yeah, yeah. and then it all fit, it kind of fits together that way okay that makes sense so. yeah and, and honestly good stories are i think oftentimes based off of like those interpersonal connections you know very character driven stuff and like right. that is I mean essentially what we have here, um, so because mm-hmm. of that I, I, I give it a little bit more credit, and so because of that, let me give the uh, maybe th- th- three and one exploded um, Endrin rig. Is that what they're calling the bubbles? Yeah. Um, out of out of five bubbles, so I'll give it a, I'll give it a three and a half. Um, it was uh, yeah I, I, again uh, because of this conversation. I feel like after talking about these books, I always end up liking them more than maybe I did going into it, and. When it comes to Code of the Skies, I may not have been super gung-ho to like read the sequel, but you know what? Not talking about it, I think I, I will add it higher on the list of, of books I need to uh, pick up and take a look at. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. That was a long-winded response. Any other thoughts before we close her down? No, I think I'm good. Before yeah, we explode it uh, into a demon. All right, cool. Um, it's time for our reforging. Welcome to the Pocket Realm, a Mortal Realm short story phase. Grab your hammer so we can clear a path through the chaos and forge our own narratives in the Age of Sigmar. Your allies through the Realm Gates this episode are... I'm Davey, and you're about to hear some puns. I just want you to remember, even they can be redeemed, even those whose hearts may seem black. And this is Eric, and we're gonna bail you out of your boredom. And this is Aaron, and if I had a magic mirror, I would ask it, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the freshest of them all? Hey guys, uh, little known fact, that little funny little joke was the original intro that Eric used in the lost episode of Pantheon. And I figured (laughs) we should bring something from that tragic demise uh, into this new episode for, I was going to say good luck, but there's no way 
possible that I could that could even remotely be good luck. I think I've just doomed us all. I'll, I'll <laughs> say it does prove that uh, the the person delivering it and the delivery is important. <laughs> Ouch! Touche. Uh, hey, everybody. This is a this is a pocket realm. Uh, welcome. We've got uh, Davey. How you doing? I'm doing just fine. Yourself? Excellent. Doing fantastic. And we have another Moral Realms guest today. We have Eric. Hey. You know him. You know him from uh, all the other, sh- basically all the other shows. Yeah, you um, guys have uh, kept the entrance to this thing a little secret. I keep looking for it, and I haven't been able to find it until now. It's kind of cozy in here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've been dangling it over you. Um, and That's all right. we, we've we finally let it, it now it tastes all the sweeter that you've finally been able to uh, join us here today. Um, we will change the locks on your way out, though. Yeah, okay. no, no, I, I expect it. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you're not going to be, you're going to wonder how uh, the path you took to get here, um, but we'll have to blindfold you. Um, You'll put that uh, that giant wolf in the way, right? Oh, yeah. Wow. Way to tie it into a story. Speaking of which, today we're actually going to be talking about uh, Pantheon by Guy Haley, an oldie but a goodie. Um, we'll dive into that a little bit more. But first, I want to ask you guys um, my my favorite questions of all time. Um, what was the last hobby you did or the last game you played or the last book you read? And Eric, I'll throw it to you first. Yeah. Um, as of recording this, the night before or two nights before, I got together with Paven and Josh from the Dogs of War Cry uh, cast. And we did a little Adepticon planning. Uh, so we're running an event this year, a War Cry um, narrative event on Thursday of Adepticon. And we're just hammering some things out. And it was a really fun session. I uh, had a lot of good ideas and it's it's a fun fun group to collaborate with. So yeah, that was awesome. my hobby. I'll count that as a hobby for sure. Uh, Davey, hobby you did, game you played, or book you read? Uh, I am currently into Pete Dexter, one of my favorite authors, and one of my favorite books of his, uh, Paper Trails, True Stories of Confusion, Mindless Violence, and Forbidden Desires, a surprising number of which are not about marriage. And it is a collection of his columns, and he is really excellent. It's the book I've most often given as a gift to someone. Um, my birthday's coming up. All right. And myself, um, I'll say the last game that I played, what? Cue the surprise faces. Um, I didn't get to play Phil of What the Hex fame in a little game called uh, Warhammer Underworlds. Um, I busted out some some ghosties that I finally put together, uh, and we played at the Warhammer store. And uh, he almost beat me with a just out-of-the-box um, ogre deck with my tooled-up net deck uh, ghost deck. And so I feel like I have... I have a ways to go in my piloting of, of that uh, particular play style. Either that or you're one and zero with them and it's time to quit while you're hundred percent win rate. You're down, right? I, I can't wait to see uh, the league standings because I, I do very much hope that I am on top uh, above him. Um, <laughs> uh, so that is where I'm at. Uh, I don't imagine I will play any again anytime soon. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so you'll float back down the ladder. Saved it. Um, so that is what we've been up to now. How about we jump into the story phase, the things that people really want to hear. So, uh, story phase it away. The story phase in the age before chaos, during a time of myth, the pantheon of gods ruled as Sigmar's hand as dark times return to the mortal realm. Sigmar beseeches the goddess Alariel to heed a tale of those better years when he hopes will restore not only her faith, but the faith of all noble creatures. I'll tell you what, he's restored my faith. That's for sure. Um, so uh, the story is Pantheon by Guy Haley. This came out, I want to say like twenty, the end of 2016, maybe. Um, I think it was like a, maybe an advent story 
Um, and we actually initially covered it back in 2017, like one of the early episodes. Um, if I remember correctly, we might've been in Eric's basement. That was like the yeah. only time we ever recorded in my yeah. basement. must've been bad luck. I was just going to say, and we learned our lesson. Um, I don't even remember what happened to it. We stopped recording halfway through, or maybe we never recorded in the first place. It <sighs> I think doesn't matter. There was matter. a computer crash and we were uh, all sitting there going, uh, we just wasted our time. Good. Yeah. Right. Cause we had gotten no enjoyment out of it whatsoever. <laughs> um, so uh, I bring that up because why Why are we reading this story? First of all, we wanted to make up for our past mistakes. Um, it was high time that we revisited it. Plus, um, I feel like we re-reference it every once in a while. Like in different episodes, it, it, it comes up in conversation, um, the things that we may have learned uh, back then. Um, do you guys have any other any other reasons, thoughts as to why we should, we should uh, talk about this short story? I think we do keep referencing it and there seems to be like information that only existed in this book that kind of keeps getting popped up even, you know, three or four years later. Yeah. We talk about how you can uh, flesh out the world in a, in a few ways. And this one does it in a different manner than some of what we're used to seeing. Uh, so I think it was uh, very worthy to cover for that reason. And kind of furthermore, um, in, in this in this current day, we're, we're finding out more about uh, this new Lumineth army and we're, we're learning more about Teclis lately. And um, as they sort of flesh out the Pantheon as it exists, like in the, the current day uh, in the mortal realms, it's, it's nice to maybe get a glimpse back to um, how the Pantheon might've interacted um, in earlier days. So it sort of informs the, the present as well on, the, on that front. So uh, I thought it was high time that we, we pick it back up. Plus it's just a good little story. Um, so let's start with our, our facts, our factoids, our W's. Um, when does this story take place? David, do you have any thoughts on the, on the when? Yeah, excitingly, it takes place in the age of myth, and we have very, very few uh, pieces of fiction that are, are placed in that time. Um, no, I take, well, it's actually confusing, I guess. It opens, and we're in the age of Sigmar, uh, but the bulk of the tale is actually set in the age of myth, because it's a story within a story. Yeah, there was a, a couple of times where, yeah, the, the setting is this place after the Pantheon has disbanded. Uh, and there's a little bit of nostalgia and a little bit of that, just looking back on what was. And I mean, I personally love any information we can get out out of the Age of Myth. Um, it it's, ends up being, I would like to think, ends up being fairly formative to the things that um, you know uh, happen later on. Obviously, as you would expect, time flows linearly. I think. Um, and so, uh, I, I, any chance I get to, um, look back to that time frame, I, I, I jump on. It's kind of one of the benefits of those like battle tomes, right? When you get the time timelines and they spend a chunk on the age of myth, like I got, I gobble that stuff up. So, uh, I love it. I want more of it. Um, Eric, you alluded to, um, not just the when, but the where the initial story takes place. Do you want to, you want to talk about that a little bit? Um, yeah, so we go back to um, the place where the Pantheon actually gathered, and it's in Azir, um, a place called Highheim, um, in the the city of Mount, or sorry, atop Mount Celestine, um, and you can think of it like uh, the the uh, you know Mount Olympus kind of feel to it, and um, and we've we've gathered there, and you get some sense of the space, the um, the throne room or the the council room that the gods would have would have uh, gathered in, um, and we can go talk about that uh, as well. But it's in this the city in Azir, and and specifically on top of this mountain uh, council room. Yeah, and it's cool because 
talking about the age of myth, I also feel like we don't get enough stories that are set in Azir. Like I, I, it seems to be so um, formative and foundational for a lot of the order armies that like it may exist in the moral realms. And I feel like just flat out, we don't know all that much about it. So um, any, any glimpse or view into this space, um, I, I personally am all about uh, Davey. There's, there's another where uh, in the story within a story. Where, where, where does that take place? There's the, uh, I mean, it, it stretches far and wide, but Andamar is, is the, uh, sort of home base for uh, our, our main character who we'll find out about in a bit. Uh, and that is a city on the far edge of Gairan. Which, it, and everything that comes along with living in, in, in Gairan. Um, you reference a, a main character. You want to keep, you going to keep running with our uh, bad boy mage? I don't, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> uh, Sanase Bela is a great mage from the Age of Myth. And he, his accomplishments are, are great already. He uh, I believe has mastered five of the pure forms of magic with working knowledge of the other three and enough knowledge of the dark arts to steer clear, I think is how he described it himself. So um, not that bad boy, actually. <laughs> right. But uh, I mean, we know that's significant because human mages traditionally are only supposed to be able to really kind of uh, chow down on, on one of those eight. Um, so he's, he's five times the mage we would expect to be able to, to see. Uh, but He's accomplished. Uh, he's he's in the prime of his life, and he's he's uh, kind of struggling with what to do next. Yeah, um, and so he's main for the most part the the main character of this story within a story. So he he's the he takes um, the point of view of this tale that Sigmar is sort of um, trying to describe. And so I mentioned Sigmar because he's actually the first character that we interact with on this story because what he's doing is re- looking to the past with Alario. So the two of them are taking kind of front and center roles um, at this much larger, like meta story here, um, which is fun because you will go both get the glimpse of their perspectives, uh, but then you're able to get sort of shot into this. What ends up being kind of like a, I don't know, maybe like a, a mythological tale a little bit. Like it's, it's hearkening back to this age of myth and we've got this very accomplished mage, which almost seems larger than life and in, in his accomplishments that we don't see a lot of in, in present day. It's almost, it's weird because you've got the gods who who should know like what happened back there, but it almost seems like they're telling a tall tale a little bit about this very powerful mage, you know, back in history. But maybe it just speaks to the the differences between the power levels between uh, the Age of Myth and and the Age of Sigmar now. Well, I think that's a interesting uh, dynamic you talk about in terms of of and what this story kind of talks about too is sometimes the limitations of of man, the limitations of gods, um, and even is there something above a God um, that, and, and in the end kind of tries to weigh what's important, you know, in all that power, what's important. Yeah. And that's uh, something I want to come back to because um, it's a, a thought that's brought up in, in the book as well. Um, and so do you guys have any other what's that would contribute to uh, what makes this makes up this story? Uh, there are, uh, appearances from two other gods, mention of a third, uh, and we get uh, an introduction or a conversation with a really important and unexpected guest um, uh, that that Bela gets some some help from. So that's a, a nice who's who uh, once you've read this. Yeah, a little bit of a teaser there. But uh, any other spoiler-free stuff before we jump into our spoiler section? Hot and heavy, uh, the spoiler phase. Guys, let's 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 dive right in. Um, so uh, we had mentioned that this is a story wrapped around another story. So uh, we we the, the the scene opens up where we're sort of navigating um, through 
I guess as your like landscape as we end up on the top of this Mount Celestian, um, so that uh, we can get a sense of what this space looks like and what it what it feels like. Um, it's uh, like we mentioned, it's sort of a Mount Olympus equivalent, and so this is where the gods would hang out or where they needed to interact with each other. And because of that, they've all sort of left their mark, despite the fact that it's you know set squarely in Azir. Um, so because of that, it, it sort of changes um, the way the, the the structure is laid out. Since they had to hang out and sort of hold council here, um, there was there's this throne room. I think Eric maybe alluded to before, um, and, and each god or goddess uh, has a specific throne made of different materials, which I thought was obviously really awesome. I love when different um, different groups of people come together, but they bring their own you know personal I, perspective I had that, on it. I had that exact thought listening to this or reading this. I was like, oh, I bet you Aaron is loving this part right now. Yeah, I love that <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Uh, and what was cool about this is that they didn't they didn't necessarily like they wouldn't always say like, and this was for Gorkamorka. You just like describe it and you'd and to be obvious, but you would just be left to like make that connection, you know. Yeah, and it wasn't even just thrones, but they had their own towers and stuff too. Oh my gosh! Oh, I eat it! I eat it up! I wanted I wanted everybody to be there and be like, all right, well, I'm going to walk out of my. Um, I can't even remember. I wanted my iron uh, temple, and I'm going to jump off my throne of bones or whatever. Um, so I want more stories where the gods have to like interact and like have to use their own, you know, different like forces of nature. Anyways, that's that's an aside. Um, but uh the gods are long gone like this is this is i'm not gonna say present day because today in 2020 like the story has far surpassed sort of this time frame but it kind of around the realm gate wars um time uh and the pantheon is long since broken up in this in this age of sigmar but sigmar is there walking amongst the thrones and he presumably at some point had put a call out to lariel and he wanted to talk to her um and she abides. She does. She 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 appears. Um, so this must have taken place after sort of Valera was freed in the Realm Gate Wars or reawoken. Um, and they sort of talk about that a little bit. Well, I think it's it's interesting. This this dy- there's a dynamic here that you're, is really interesting because we we get the the perspective of the gods from people, right? And we often talk about you know, uh, or there's often a conversation around Sigmar is acting terribly because, you know, again, they're retreating to Azir or this, that, or the other, that there's a very human level judgment on what the gods are doing. And in this exchange, we, we get, um, Alarial, um, reprimanding, uh, basically doing both reprimanding and thanking Sigmar for his actions. Uh, so there's a, an aspect of, you know, the blaming him for his, uh, warriors leading Nurgle into her kind of pocket realm, her secret, uh, space. Um, but the, wait, could that happen here? Are we in trouble? Uh, I mean, I feel like I'm proof of it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just going to leave this over here. You don't, don't pay attention to that. Um, the, so, so they, she, they let him in and which causes her death. Um, but the whole realm gate or that aspect, that part of the realm gate wars where they go and they take that seed and they plant it and her warrior aspect comes out. Um, she thanks him for that because if it wasn't for that, like she, she sees her, she apologizes in that way for her kind of, um, uh, falling into her despair. And so that there's a, there's definitely kind of like a, uh, two gods talking about the realities and that, that it's not all good. It's not all bad. It's a little bit of all of it. Right tough choices. So, um, and even in, um, you know, she talks about how, you know, uh, you know, uh, a little bit of like, Hey, you know, it's bold to have summoned me. And he, he says it a different way. He says, I didn't summon you. I invited. And so, um, she remarks on, on some humility that he's, 
um, perhaps seen. And I, I would, I'd like to think that some of that comes from, you know, the, that, and that, the, the age of chaos kind of whooping his, uh, his plans and him having to retreat that he's gained some humility from that probably. So, yeah. So it's, it's some interesting dynamic there. Yeah. 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 And they get uh, fairly philosophical here and, and also towards the uh, end of the story. Um, but uh, Davey, so Eric said that Sigmar had invited Alariel. Uh, why did, why did he invite her here? So she's assuming it's, you know, to be part of another plan or, or to, uh, you know, to uh, ask her something, ask some favor. Uh, but he wants to bring her to the mirror of Bela, which we, we don't know much about yet. Um, and he wants her to see Bela the man. So, uh, use the mirror that Bela gifted to the Pantheon, um, right? We, we know it was a gift. We don't know why necessarily, um, but use that to look back at the person who created it. Uh, and particularly it, it talks about how she knows, knows some little bit of them because she's, she's more concerned with the wildness, the wild areas and, and, uh, you know, plants, creatures of flesh are, are not really her purview. And so they kind of escape her notice. And so I think this is probably a savvy move from, from Sigmar to uh, say, Hey, you know, this is a lesson that, or there's, there's something to be learned here that uh, of, of any of my former Pantheon, you know, may have, may have been able to escape um, Alerio more than most. Well, I think too, he's, there's a little bit of like, um, you know, he's from Garan, which means that, you know, he's part of, he prefers that kingdom. Um, And, uh, you know, I'd like to say that he's got a lot of, a lot grand for him, you know, he's, uh, Oh, you, you delivered it. So deadpan. I didn't, I didn't see it coming. Uh, all that mage stuff, all that magic stuff. So if there's a human out there to pay attention to this guy's, this guy's got some value. Well, and it's sort of surprising for a guy who we end up being told that he's, you know, so incredibly powerful. He still sort of is a little bit beneath uh, her notice. Like you would think this human that could wield all these powers would, would at least catch her attention. She's like, yeah, maybe I heard of him, but yep. Uh, surprise, surprise. So this is where this story and the story uh, starts. So they look in this mirror and it, and it sort of tells the tale of, of Santa Cebela, um and, and how he um, learned what he learned and, and delivered uh, this mirror to the, to the gods. And so um, it starts off, we find out that Santa Cebela is this, like we said, this very powerful mage. He lives in this city of Andamar, which is on the far edges of uh, Gairan. And the man's kitten, he's a little listless. Like he's achieved such an incredible power. Um, incredible like status um everybody knows his, everybody in the area knows his name but uh he's still not satisfied and he- heck he's got a wife he's got kids um but he still thinks that there's this purpose this great purpose out there for him but uh, he hasn't realized what it is yet and uh his wife notices that he's he's he seems unsatisfied and she's like hey what's your deal and he's like i gotta i gotta find what i gotta do with my life um she she says are, are you not satisfied with what what you have here i mean she's not nearly as judgy as i am right now but um he says, no, I want, I want to see what I can do to um, uh, find my direction um, and find my purpose. Uh, she suggests that he he reaches out to the gods, like the gods can maybe give him a, a direction. And he says, you know, what? that's a great idea. I think I'm going to do just that. And he first, let's see if I remember this correctly. He first climbs the temple to Teclis in Andamar, apparently even in Gairan. Um, they have temples to the other gods. And so here there is a temple to Teclis. Seems like there should be a certain affinity there because our guy's a mage and he likes magical stuff um so he climbs this tower that has an increasingly narrowing staircase such that when he reaches the top he has to climb it sideways because the stairs are so narrow um when he finally reaches the top 
Uh, he lays his little mat down on this top of this incredibly high tower, and he goes into a trance. He meditates, something to that effect. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, lo and behold, he is greeted by, uh, I don't know if Teclas has a nickname, uh, the, the, the elf himself. Uh, <laughs> and they, they, they chat. Um, and so what, what, what do they talk about? What does Teclas tell him? Uh, Eric. Well, I think th- what's really interesting here is, you know, just, you know, pages before Alariel has said that she doesn't know the name. She hasn't, doesn't, isn't familiar. Uh, but in this case, Teclas does recognize him and has been watching him. And so, you know, the, 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 omniscience of a God, you know, isn't knowing everything that's going on everywhere. There's the realms are big enough or there's enough stuff going on that certain realm, certain gods take interest in certain things. And, and even, you know, we know that elves don't expect much from humans. Um, and so again, this is a, a, a credibility uh, or a credit to Bela. Um, but he does uh, believe, it, you know, Bela is asking for, um, what he should be doing, and and he wants to know: Is it even possible to go to the the? In this case, well, you guys correct me. To he's asking: Is are the is the realm's edge a real thing? Um, this idea that that this that there's an edge to the realms that they they stop, and that there's a nothingness, or that there's something going on there. Kind of the prevailing idea is that they just are infinite; they go on forever, and there's no way to to nobody's ever gone to the edge, no one's ever come back to the edge. Um, so, in all of his vast knowledge, that's still a question of whether that exists. And and Teclas gives him a, a confirmation uh, that they do exist, and that the answer can be found. Uh, in a distant in a di- distant mountain range, um, uh, and that he has to is this uh, where he gives him the kind of the riddle? Yeah, he, no, he, t- he tells him that there is in this mountain range there is a gate um, that will lead to the realm's edge of Gyran, and, and Bela's thinking that like this is maybe where he's going to find his purpose, or maybe getting there is his purpose. Um, but there's a gate that is locked in this mountain range; and it's got no key, and only he who can forge the unforgeable can furnish you with one. Um, and then furthermore, that's not enough. Uh, of course, there's a monster involved. And there, this monster uh, is a monster which only death can kill. So good luck with that, big guy. Um, <laughs> but uh, if you overcome these sort of hurdles, uh, he's going to discover his heart's desire. But as with any sort of granting of a wish, you may not uh, like what you find. So like, even Teclas is like, so maybe you just stay here. You dumb little human, like chill out. <laughs> uh, but that obviously is not enough for our all-powerful wizard. He's like, "All right, cool, I'm going to do it." Um, and how does his family take it, Davy? Uh, not great. His his small children are, uh, you know, clinging to him and crying and pleading with him not to go. Uh, it's a little rough. Like having having kids myself, I was like, "Oh man, eh. I mean, you know." you, you got to go away for chunks at a time for work and all that sort of thing. This is that plus a lot more, you know? So yes, uh, work and not adepticon. Yes. That also, <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I, I thought that, uh, just as an aside, I thought some of these, these moments with family, there's just, you know, it's a, it's a very short story and there's even, uh, a pretty small amount devoted to that. But I thought guy Haley wrote them well enough that I, I, I really believed him, um, and that uh, that gave the story some more heft than it would have otherwise. So, there's a there's an exchange early when he's talking to his wife about the, or that restlessness where she challenges him. She says, "You know, you could stay at home and take care of the house and make sure that our finances don't collapse and uh, watch the children." Like, 
and he dismisses it, but she puts forth a pretty good case that that's a, a, a fairly hefty task, which I think more and more, obviously in our, in our modern age is getting the, the credibility that it's due, that that is, that is a job, you know, and it has a lot of values to the family. So uh, yeah, there's some really weighty family moments for sure. But despite all this uh, family weight or heft, uh, he still uh, is undeterred from his mission and he, he resolves to go and first find um, this key so that he can unlock this door. So if I understand correctly, he travels for like, I don't know, six years or something small and inconsequential <laughs> and uh, ends up in Chaman. Um, because if you're going to find somebody who can forge a key, I reckon that's a great place to start. And so he, he waltzes up to this, uh, I don't know, this big fortress. I don't know why he thinks that this is the place where they would, is it, is it a temple to Grung, Grungni or what, what is yeah. this place? And he's like, well, the person who can forge the unforgeable is, you know, if anyone would know, anyone would know it's the, the people who revere Grungni. So we'll go to the iron temples and check with them there. And, uh, and there's, you know, it, it's you read between the lines. It sounds like it was six, six rough years of getting there. He's, he's showing up older and scarred and, you know, it wasn't, wasn't an easy trip. And then absurdly he gets there and he can't even get past the first guard. Like he, he tries bargaining and pleading and the dwarf guard, uh, Dwarden guard is like, no, uh, this is, this is not for humans. Um, you can, you can get out of here. Uh, and he's he's dejected, you know, right away. Um, and even like with his all powerful like magic and stuff, like the the runes of the place, like just like uh, stifle him, and he can't he can't like even like muscle his way in at all. Yeah, I think I I got the sense that he was either expecting Grogni to be there or be able to summon Grogni from there in the same way that he felt like he could summon Teclas. Um, you know, he seemed it seemed like he had a very high sense of himself being able to contact the gods. Well, and up until this point, like he was relatively successful. He got one, like that's not bad. Um, but again, that's he, he was able to contact the god of like magic, whereas I reckon a Duarden god has no no time for that at all. Um, so he leaves uh, dejected and he heads off into the like the metal hills. And it, for a split second, they kind of describe a little bit of some of the, the landscape and how the trees and the grass are all metal, which I, I forget sometimes that this place is a weird metal I'm going to say hellscape because I have no desire to live there. Um, but as he's setting up camp, a an old, older, uh, white bearded Duarden, uh, like I don't know, c- comes out behind a rock or something and stumbles upon his little camp. And um, Bela is smart enough to know that he should probably uh, offer some hospitality to this dwarf. Um, which and right, like in stories like these, it's often like, oh, this mage, he's grumpy. He was turned away. Um, so like, he's not going to, off- he's not going to offer any, you know, hospitality. He's not going to be nice to anybody that greets him. And then, you know, some curse is going to befall him, but not in this case, uh, Bela knows better. And he, uh, shares his food, shares his drink. Um, and it ends up being to his benefit because this, uh, Dwarden, uh, happens to have, uh, aforementioned key just, just on him, just in his pocket or something. And, uh, he hands it over because of the the kindness shown to him by by Bela. Question to you, who's this who's this dude? I don't Well, there's a this uh they describe him. He's he's got this uh white beard uh, you know sticking out from his from his hood. Uh and this character has shown up before in the world that was uh and it's he's never or very rarely a- actually named, but this is this is the white dwarf. Um is is the sort of conclusion you can draw. Um, and what, uh, there's an awesome exchange here where he, as he's handing over the key, uh, Bela is like, well, I, there's not, 
it's not supposed to be one in all of existence. And uh, the, the traveler says, well, didn't Elf tell you that? Come on. Uh, and he says, but also, you didn't say anything about outside of existence. I said, yes, this is stuff I love. Davey loves that nonsense. <laughs> I do, yeah. I love, uh, I love that, that they've taken the white dwarf and, and put them in, him into stories in ways that are also like this, this model comes out every so often. They name a new model, a white dwarf. They, you know, the white dwarf in a space Marine outfit, a white dwarf in a blood bowl, a white dwarf, um, you know, pirate or whatever. Um, and so it's kind of cool that he could maybe just show up whenever needed in whatever form. Yeah. And I like, so a number of things at, at, at the time when this story came out, it was, uh, 2016. It was very early. We didn't have a lot of background and we, uh, we didn't have a lot of characters that we knew had made it over from the world. It was so at the time it was really exciting to see like, and this, this is one that felt representative, uh, cause he, he was always a sort of, uh, supernatural character, um, that, didn't have the status of a, of a deity, uh, but with some sort of sort of trickster traveler, you know, moving, moving throughout the, uh, Warhammer universe. And that's a pretty fun role to have, uh, existing in, in, uh, age of Sigmar. Well, and I think he is sort of uniquely, uh, suited to being sort of in the age of myth, right? Like it, I was sort of describing the story as sort of a, a little bit of a tall tale full of like powerful creatures and stuff like that. Well, like he, he also seems like a, a character out of a, a tale or a folk story. Um, and for him to show up in a setting in a time frame back in that age of myth, I feel like he, he fits right in having these sort of um, wise traveler type type characters. So um, I didn't, even if he wasn't, uh, you know, the white dwarf specifically, that, that type of character, I feel I didn't bat an eye uh, reading about him. So it's cool. Uh, awesome. So now we got a key. Sweet. Now we got to go find the door to which this key uh, belongs. And so, again, correct me if I'm wrong. I think he just hoofs it right back to Gairan, which is where the, the mountain range is said to be. And then he spends a whole, I don't know, another three years or something trying to just find this obscure tunnel in the mountains that he, he like has to consult with some like locals um and they're eventually able to point him in the right direction and then he has to climb this mountain like cliff face mountain and there's the door set up in the sky uh but after a long search he's, he's able to find him sticks the key in and the door slides open without making a sound like as if as if it had just been oiled uh and he enters uh, into this tunnel in Gairan. tell me what he finds next uh eric as he goes through, uh, he finds his way to, to get through. It grows a little bit larger. The wind, hot wind's blowing, and he can kind of uh, get, gets a sense that this is the breath of a large beast. Uh, and he finds a, a wolf of impossible size, which is uh, not the same as a rodent of unusual size. Mm-hmm. And it's blocking the way. Um, and it's a it's a sentient wolf. Uh, and it tells him that he cannot pass, uh, neither God nor mortal. Uh, it is the law. And, and so um, he is both the prisoner and the guardian. Of, of that law. Yeah, it's a cool line. And noteworthy, he only has one head, not three. Oh, there you <laughs> go. And he tries, uh, Bela tries everything he can. He throws the worst stuff he's ever learned, uh, which is still not the, the dark magic. Um, but, you know, uh curses and and uh you know powerful blast spells i'm sure there's some singeing fur which you know smells terrible um but everything everything fails and uh he pulls out this poison and the wolf is like i what you're not going to poison me and he pulls a uh you know m night Shyamalan and he poisons himself 
and uh, it causes his uh, body to fall down dead and his soul to hurtle to Shyish. Back to you, Aaron. Okay, I'll take it. Um, but all the while, while he's sort of hurtling towards Shyish, great way to put it, um, he's being beset by all sorts of ghosts with like scythes and stuff. And this is um, before uh, the Night Haunt book comes out. But like the way they're described here is actually very similar to the Night Haunt. So they, uh, good job uh, having that horse thought. I know, granted, it was maybe described very generically. And sometimes when ghosts have scythes, like that's a sort of motif that exists. And yet, I was like, oh, I know what those look like today. So that's yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, but he goes rocketing to Shia. He goes plummeting through all different, all sorts of different underworlds. And also how this was described, um, I guess sort of matches up with how we know the underworlds to exist today. Like there's no, given that Shia is just such a sort of nebulous concept about how the different underworlds work, the way he's sort of just rocketing through them. Um, I, I, I didn't seem to, what's the opposite of jive? Unjive with what we uh, know so far. But he finds himself at in, in the a city of Nagash, probably Nagash's ear or some other equivalent, um, and uh, arrives at the foot of the throne of Nagash without having his soul severed from his body. So because of his immense power and throughout his travels as the ghost or the night hunter try to se- sever his soul from his body, they are unsuccessful and he's still got that attachment. Uh, he arrives in front of Nagash and Nagash is like, well, you're not dead. Like, how, how did this happen? Like, you should have been c- cut uh, a while back. Um, but uh, Bela's like, nope, too, too cool for that. Uh, I need a favor. And Nagash is like, well, that makes sense. You're here. So that's the only time anybody comes uh, calling <laughs> is if they need something. Nobody just comes to talk to me anymore. Yeah, no, geez. Um, <laughs> he's like, I got things. I, I. Bela's right. He's like, like, there's this there's this beast. There's this Cerberus, one-headed Cerberus dog. Um, and apparently you're the only one who can kill it. Can you can you kill it for me? And Nagash is like, all right, sure. Um, if, if you insist, but with, as with any favor from the gods, um, I'm going to need something in return. And so, oh God, what does he want? Like after he dies or something, you have to like... 500 years and five days in his service. Uh, is five important to Nagash? Where'd that come from? Well, interestingly, uh, I, so short answer, I don't know. Five came up earlier when he met Teclas. Teclas was in some realm surrounded by five suns. Uh, so I was not sure if there's something I'm missing. I'd be super pumped if there was a listener who knew the answer to that. Tell me about five. Yeah, I did a, look, a little looking around trying to, trying to figure out what that was. For Teclas, I was wondering if it had something to do with the Elven Pantheon, with it, which I'm not super tied into. And then uh, for Nagash, I was wondering if it had something to do with... Uh, there are there are different empires within, uh, like Lamia and uh, what am I thinking? Where uh, Kemri? Um, Kemri had a certain number of empires, and I wonder if it was. I wonder if there were five, or if there were fewer than that. Oh or man! More. So, hey, listeners, uh, let us know what you think. Where this five comes from? How many wins of magic did he know? He does know five. Ooh. Oh. I wonder if that contributes to that, or it's another reoccurring thing. Like sure, interesting. Uh, but good, good catch. At any rate, Nagash is like, yeah, you you do this for me. You give me your soul for that long after you die and uh, you'll have your wish. Now, maybe we can talk more about this later. This is weird because Nagash wants the souls no matter what. Like, I don't know why I'm going to do a favor for you. I'm just going to take your soul no, like regardless as far as Nagash is concerned. W- w- since when does he give out favors for him? But at any rate, uh, that is the deal that they make. And uh, Bela comes to and uh, Nagash Pacow, uh drops the, the dog dead, but Nagash does warn him. He's like, hey, uh, the beast is not going to be dead forever. His, his kind uh, recover quickly, I guess, from death, and uh, you better move fast. And so Bela does so, and he's able to navigate uh, beyond this 
be on this beast. And where does where does he arrive? Uh, Davey, where, where does he end up? Uh, well, we know now as the perimeter inimical, but he's at Realm's Edge. So uh, the mountains quickly give way to a barren, rocky plain, and there's just a wild, molten edge of uh, not like melted rock, but uh, magic, like un- untamed magic. And this is uh, this was really exciting the first time we read this because we we didn't know any of this at the time, uh, but it describes this kind of I don't know like wildly fantastical uh, realms coming or, or uh, pieces of land coming in, into being like fully formed with forests and he presumes also uh, people and cultures on them and they kind of float and sink under their own weight and then you know meld somewhere into the realm. Uh, it says they disappear in a flash of light, which I wasn't sure what was going on there. So they must just somehow attach in there. Like there's a lot of questions that we, we don't have answered there, but this is, this is what it looks like. The sort of raw, raw magic of the realm sort of infinite recreation. Yeah. It's super cool. And like you said, like this is the the, the first time we'd seen it. And I, maybe one of the only times we've seen it since, um, which makes me wonder, but at, at any rate, um, so as he marvels at this, this realm's edge, um, which as anyone would do, because it's this, you know, experience that no one else for the most part has ever seen. Um, he encounters a robed figure clutching a staff with not one, not two, but three arms. It's weird to have a staff with arms to begin with. Yeah. Right. Um, and is, would the staff be clutching you with those arms? I don't know. Hmm. Um, but, uh, this, this creature, this, this figure, this person, um, says, Hey man, what are you doing out here? Um, you're looking for your, your purpose. That's awesome. Let me, uh, let me offer you a, a, a potential route, a potential path. Let me show you this vision. Um, and what basically he, he does is sort of offer a certain level of power, um, to him. And, and he shows him a vision of what that power would look like, where, um, his name would be known across all the realms. Um, he would, uh, have, you know, incredible knowledge, incredible uh, power. Uh, he would be sort of worshipped and venerated. Um, and as he's sort of watching this vision, a classic um, power vision that, you know, any corrupting force offers, um, he, he does stop and say, hey, wait, well, where's my wife? Where's my family? Like, what, what happened to them? Um, and the creature's like, well, that's not, that's not what you desire. If you did, you wouldn't be here. You'd be there. Um, and uh, Bela kind of balks at that a little bit. Um, but he sort of comes to the conclusion, this realization that like, oh, well, you know, all this power isn't exactly what I want, but rather uh, it's, it's, it's the classic, uh, I had what I wanted all along. It was my family to be a father, to be a husband. Um, that's my purpose in life. He says something crazy like power is fleeting, family is eternal. That isn't, those words don't make any sense. I don't know what he's talking about there. But, um, <laughs> and so instead, he'd rather see a vision of, of uh, his entire uh, line, his, his daughters and his sons being born. And he seems like, all right, he's like, no, I, I, uh, through sheer will, he's able to sort of um, push back on that vision and um, realize the, you know, the important things in life. This is kind of a Disney movie a little bit at this point. <laughs> However, the one non-Disney component to it is at the end of this vision, um, he sees uh, great destruction. Like out of nowhere, there's a great calamity and the, the realms are sort of destroyed or, or, or you know, uh, beset by fire. And he's like, whoa, 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 time out, hold up. What was that? And the, and the creature was like, oh no, that was, that was, oh, that was nothing. It shouldn't have gone that far. I, I was supposed to hit stop. Uh, on the vision. <laughs> um, forget you saw that, forget you saw that. And Bela, smart enough to know that uh, he, he saw something he shouldn't have, um, I think what blows the creature away, like just destroys him or whatever. Yeah. And it comes to the realization that, you know, maybe there are, maybe has two missions in life. One is to, you know, be a good father and good husband, blah, blah, blah. But then also he, <laughs> he, he saw something that he needs to share 
Um, and so he uh, heads back to civilization with this knowledge that he needs to deliver to the gods. Yeah, specifically wants to warn the gods. Like that's exactly, and that's where his story ends. And so we jump back to um, Sigmar and to Alariel looking at this mirror in uh, Highheim. And so, what happens next? What what, are, what do they talk about, Davy? Uh, they're they're talking about he had this chance at immortality and he chose not to take it. And Sigmar Sigmar is seeing that lesson as as important you know lariel says that's going to come hollow from you you are immortal he's what well, I, I didn't always i didn't want to be i didn't choose to be i was elevated by a god above me um you know back in the world that was but his idea is that you know chaos found its way into into the uh into the realms into the eight realms by uh, he, he feels like the core component is, is the fear of death and the the, the four chaos gods can offer offer kind of a way around or a salve to that, to that fear. And his idea is like, if we can, we can impart this lesson to, uh, to our followers, to the mortals throughout the realms, if they can not, not to say that, you know, that, that they should rush towards death, but that they should find the joy in the life that they have. Uh, in fact, I think he even says like that the death is an important part of it. It gives you this, it makes the, the spark of life all the more valuable. Um, if we can get that, remove some of their fear of it, then uh, that reduces the impetus for them to turn to chaos. Uh, and that's, you know, that's what sort of saved Bela here is he, the idea of like what he could accomplish within this life and then the lives that came after him rather than, rather than kind of the scorched earth that I want to save myself at the cost of, you know, all my descendants and all the people around me. Uh, so he's, he's appealing to Alaria to go amongst people uh, as someone who knows about cycles and regrowth and, and rebirth and, and that sort of thing and feels like she can convey that message as well as, as any of them. Yeah. Eric, what did, what did you take from their conversation? Yeah. I, I think similar. I mean, he, at one point he, he sees the, uh, this potential future where he's getting big things, uh, um, tributes to his name and big buildings built in his name while his family's graves are, are getting just grown over with leaves and forgotten or with vines and forgotten. Um, and that, that there's a cost to that. And, and, you know, so he sees that, uh, that, you know, again, for him, it's that you don't have to be magical to be important. You don't have to be, uh, to change the world, to be important. Um, and his life work then becomes, he can be home. And, and I like to imagine that this mirror is the culmination of his warning to the gods. Yeah, totally. Uh, that this, that, that the mirror of Bela is that ability, you know, you think of reflection, you think of uh, this can obviously look back in time. So there's the, this idea of, um, you know, history repeating itself or, you know, um, being able to look and see things and, and also maybe increasing their omniscience because they obviously can't see everything or know everything. So using the mirror to spread, to spread how far they can see or how far back they can see or even how far forward. Um, and that, um, and that in the end, you know, as much as there are gods and we, we talk about, uh, you know, why can't Sigmar just come in and fight Archeon and, and be done with it? Um, that the battle isn't won by gods, it's won by people. Uh, and, and if, you know, the cities of Sigmar book just came out and it, you know, seems can seem like futile for, you know, fragile mortal humans to be fighting against these, you know, giants and monsters. Um, but it's that, it's that, uh, kind of burst of light in a, in a short lifespan, uh, that has the most effect on, on keeping the realms positive, keeping them 
growing and thriving. Uh, so it's an interesting, again, that, that the layers of, of gods admiring humans or, or mortals uh, for what they have um, without the burden of immortality. Sure. Um, one of my favorite parts was his sort of uh, request to Ilariel, because like David said, she has a unique perspective on sort of the cycle of life and death. And not only just to have her walk amongst the people, but also for her to send like missionaries and sort of um, to bring folks into the fold, which is odd to think of like her missionaries as the Sylvaneth, because we find that, uh, I don't know what kind of missionary work they're doing, but it's not a very good, uh, <laughs> they're not winning anybody over, I don't think. Um, but he, he, he brings up missionaries because he says, yes, because uh, chaos has long used such missionaries against us, but we shall do the same. And we have the advantage for chaos lies, um, which I, I don't know was fun, like his certainty in, in, in knowledge. But uh, I echo a lot of what you guys said, this, this uh, perspective on Im- immortality directly f- or mortality from the directly from the gods is, is illuminating, enlightening, um, which is pretty cool. And it's uh, with that, it's, it's sort of a, has an optimistic, hopeful ending with these two uh, god and goddesses um, sort of looking towards the future and trying to figure out their place in it and how uh, they might um, overcome uh, chaos with along with the mortals as well. So uh, again, very optimistic ending. And so I think that is the end of the story. You guys have any other thoughts about the plot before we get some other fun questions? Oh, let's go on to questions. Let's, let's do it. Do it um, in no particular order. Actually, I'll jump on this one because we we're just talking about it. Uh, we spent a lot of time about talking about sort of Sigmar's philosophy here at the end. Do you feel that the Sigmar in the pa- these pages are the same Sigmar that we know about, sort of the post-forbidden power uh, age, uh, post-Realm uh, Gate Wars, post-Soul Wars, post-forbidden power? Does he come off the same? Is this the same, kind of, same guy? Uh, this is definitely a more thoughtful sigmar than we're maybe used to seeing and this is a sort of a, a quiet moment uh, of contemplation so that may contribute to this particular aspect of him i don't i don't think we've i don't think we've seen him in this way uh if if at all certainly hasn't been very often uh, but i still buy it you know i'm, I'm willing to he's, he's sort of wrathful and, and quick to anger and in a time of war, I can see that other side being more prevalent and uh, more often pictured. Yeah. I think he, I think he shows there's aspects of him the same way we talk about aspects of Nagash and there's aspects of Alariel. And I imagine that they can apply them where they need them and whether it's conscious or not, whether they're being manipulative or if that's just them, like we, yeah, we know Sigmar most in his warlike state. Um, But I think the other in Hamilcar, you know, Sigmar goes to him, correct? Uh, and gives him a mission, it, but it, it's a it's a very measured version of Sigmar, uh, and and almost to break his own rules, um, you know, can't let my own creations know that I'm breaking this rule, um, in order to to further things. So, you know, yeah, he he has some different aspects, and this is it's cool seeing this aspect of him. Yeah, I agree. Um, and you touched on what I wanted to bring up, the idea that these gods do have different aspects. Nagash being the, the one that we talk about probably the most, but that doesn't mean that Sigmar doesn't feature the same thing. Um, and, and because Nagash does it, you almost expect it to be true of uh, other gods as, as well. Um, and sometimes are maybe in these stories, these gods up into being like who we need them to be um, or who they th- think we need them to be or whatever, not to get too confusing um, that uh, they are multifaceted just as, you know, their, their mortal followers are. Um, I can't remember in soul wars was, was Sigmar in there a little bit too. And like towards the end, they were having sort of a battle of wills between him and Nagash. I think he was in there as well. And it was less like physical blows versus like philosophies and, and stuff like that. So um, 
although Sigmar is very much a, a warrior god, um, he's a, a, f- a fully fleshed out uh, individual with, with m- different uh, pros and cons and, and per- uh, personalities. Oh, I liked it in our episode of uh, salvaging a previous lost episode. You liked it to reference our other lost episode. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. Uh, it's, our, it's a pocket realm of a pocket realm. Yeah, that's true. Uh, uh, next time, uh, the, any other episode we did on Soul Wars would not be a pocket realm. That's for sure. Uh, Eric, what were you going to say? <laughs> well, I think there was a couple other, you know, like uh, we see a different side in a gash also. Like this is um, uh, in this memory of the Age of Myth. Nagash is pretty chill um, and not really jealous and not really paranoid. Um, and so there's kind of a, you know, interesting aspect to that. Um, <laughs> I had two kind of, well, one really weird hot take was what if, uh, no, no, we get, I think we get the name of the Lord Relictor, um, in Gates of Azir, don't we? Oh, uh, um, the, not Ramus, not Morbus. How did I just get two obscure relictors? Not the one I need. Um, and I know what you're, you're talking so there's, about. So there's a, the main relictor, which we can't think of his name off the top of our heads because it's random, but, uh, who was in service to Nagash. So we know that there's been other humans or, or mortals that have been in service to Nagash. Cryptborn? Um, Ionis Cryptborn? Yeah, nailed it. Nailed it. Uh, uh, in three. Um, and uh, and so he was in service and made some sort of deal. And then in his in his death, bro- you know, was taken by Sigmar and put to purpose for the Stormcast. In my head, I was like, I, I wonder if Bela got caught up in something like this too, right? Like, you know, at some point, you know, or could he be Ionis? That would be a, a funny thing. But I think we got Ionis's uh, mortal name uh, in the stories. But I don't know that connection of of Nagash making deals with humans uh, f- for their service and 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 those being kind of broken in the future. So, and that's why he broke out of the pantheon. He's like, I've had it, I've had it up to here. Um, Keep stealing how, my best guys. Yeah, why would you do that? Um, speaking of which, like, it's never described in the story like what happens then like that that he's never really had to pay his price in the the in the book at all um so i wonder what his his 500 years ended up being like um you mentioned the, the different aspects of nagash um we don't get a lot of at least in the books that we've read uh, a lot of alarial directly um but i i feel like this maybe the story might have stood out against what we knew about alarial at the time and that she had just been woken up and she's very warlike and she wanted to shred some folks up um but just her sort of not she wasn't reserved and you could tell that she's sort of holding back her violence a little bit in this story and she's trying to be more like um level-headed and so it seemed like maybe when this book came out that was maybe a change of pace for her since then i feel like she's maybe um calmed down quite a bit in the stories especially with sort of her interaction with some of the cities of sigmar um we, we get a little a fair bit more of like the, the joining of like the Sylvaneth with just like the mortals of the mortal realms. And so it, it to my mind, she sort of matches what we know, um, what we know now. Did, did Alariel stand out for you guys at all? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I it fleshed her out a little bit more. She, both Sigmar and she seems very cognizant of the fact that she operates in these, in these cycles, you know, of these, her own seasons. Um, and that's, that's a, that's a fun aspect to her. So it was nice to have that reinforced. And it's good, it's good to know that about yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's very understanding of each other's strengths and, and flaws and, um, you know, but also asking them to be better, uh, put it like charging themselves with some, res- you know, more responsibility to be better, better people. Is that the right way to say it? Sure. <laughs> more, more human. Well, not, not your bias is showing. 
Uh, <laughs> uh, and I was going to ask about Techless, but I don't think we know about enough about him to say one way or the other. It was interesting. I mean, when this book dropped, this is our first interaction with Techless in the Age of Sigmar, I believe. I could be wrong, but uh, this is the first time that, and we were aware that he was he was referenced obliquely, but it's the first time we've seen any words spoken by him uh, in 2016, at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the Techless that has had his, uh, you know, those penumbral engines, um, changed and, and bastardized uh, is probably a much more angry tech techless these days you would be too do you guys have any questions before i ask some more uh just uh do you think that uh bela's whole quest this whole thing was uh was it entirely from him or were there some whispers from zinch uh, attempting to get him out there to the realm's edge where he could be corrupted as it can be that a demon was just waiting out there he would never he would never what? Zinch would never manipulate someone like that. <laughs> um, you know, I hadn't thought of it until you mentioned it right now, but that would make a lot of sense, especially because Bela probably has a target on his back, right? Like, like I'm sure mm-hmm. all sorts of folks are trying to get their claws in him. Um, sure. So that, that adds up for sure. Recruitment. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I like that uh, because, because I've thought of it. No, uh, because <laughs> it's an uh, awesome idea. No, because uh, it was, if, if that's the way it went, it was, it was very subtle. Um, early on there wasn't you know sometimes there's real heavy-handed hints of like and then a voice he didn't quite understand whispered in his head that he should be looking for more and like okay i get it uh but this this made it seem more natural and then all the more believable of how others could get corrupted you know yeah if the greatest amongst us could get could fall to this way um to to support that uh what he was dealing with was a fear um a fear of not accomplishing what he was supposed to do in the time that he had Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that that is echoed then by Sigmar that that fear is uh, and primarily of death, but of other things of purpose um, leads people to chaos. And if Zinch couldn't get his hands on him, like when he was in like a, a comfortable, like safe place, like his, his own, you know, his own land or his own, you know, battleground, like what better way than to lure him somewhere else in this like oblique uh, uh, abstract location um, to, you know, finally put the, uh, put the final test to him. Um, interesting stuff. Good thought, Davey. Um, speaking, I guess, speaking of Realm's Edge, uh, do we think that this uh, matches with what we now know? And it doesn't come up all that much, but like, I, I don't know if we've seen it specifically described all that much, but did it, did it ring true with you? Um, do we know more? Do we know less these days? I, I think part of the problem is having read this already, that this is, this is uh, sort of in my mind, this is the first time I saw it. And so now it's sort of permanently, etched on my brain is what the realm's edge looks like. Uh, one interesting way to think about it is that uh, this is specifically the realm's edge of Gyran, and maybe the way the realm's edge looks in Gyran is not the same as it looks in other realms. True. I think the closest other look we've had is Shyish, when we're talking about uh, the uh, gravesand being brought back from the edges of, of Shyish, and that uh, that did not feel as perhaps wild Um but I don't know if it got real explicit in there uh, as, as to what it looked like. But I think that's the closest other place we've come to seeing seeing the perimeter inimical. How about you, Aaron? Um, I, I Actually, you bring up a good point, and I think that is probably true for me. So I, to my mind, I'm like, yeah, this is exactly what it looks like. But it's probably because this is the first thing I read, and now, like I said, it's, it's locked in my brain. Um, and I use it to compare other uh, descriptions of it. Um, it would have been... Cr- 
what if we would have seen uh, the, that one brand of Asiak Bone Reapers here just kicking it? I mean, like, well, you didn't, you didn't see us. Uh, we're not here. Actually, Age of Myth, I don't know if they were made at that point. But still, point remains. Um, but uh, I'll tell you what to answer my question. I hope we get to read more about these, uh, these realm's edges. Uh, the benefit of having our Age of Sigmar here is that things can get real wild real quick. And uh, there's no reason why we couldn't uh, read more stories uh, featuring uh, the perimeter inimical am i saying that right good enough nice perfect i'll take it <laughs> nailed it yeah i feel like there's been a trend with some of the short stories that we read unintentional at least on my part uh for these pocket realms is that it's not uncommon that the idea of a family or you know f- familial relationships come up sounds uh, like uh subconscious guilt yeah maybe maybe <laughs> what uh, but so because in beneath the rust we talked about that 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 partnership of the two uh Karajan overlords and then back when we did um heart of the fallen there was that uh, sibling uh group there and yet here yeah. we are, are as another example of a, a mage with a family um who, who takes some some stream time um it just having it called out again uh, reminds me of the that um conversations that we've had in previous episodes and how oftentimes it, it feels like it's rare that families are brought up but here we go we've got yet another example of of that um and I, I personally would like to see e- even more, not just because I'm a I'm a family man, um, but if you're going to ha- tell like really um, personal like human stories, um, I think oftentimes family relationships can can drive uh, a lot of that. Um, did the did the family stuff hit you guys at all? Right in the the heart. Yeah, I think it. I mean, one, I think this is um, being a dad has and and doing this hobby as a dad, you know us all have kind of had started this podcast with really young children um, uh, and stuff like that. So, I mean, there's certainly a connection for us between this hobby and our kids and as they grow into the hobby sometimes. Um, and so seeing the, that, that family is valued in the writing uh, to me, I think that's valued in the, you know, in games workshop as an organization in the stories. So to me, it's, it, yeah, I like that it's, mentioned that it's valued and it's held up as an important part of the the story for sure and i'll just reiterate what i sort of said before which is that if if you can put anything effective like this you know everyone everyone in some way has their own family and uh, uh, you know every everyone's family has got its own unique twist and all that sort of thing but uh but if you can if you can write this well then it just gives the rest of it a little more weight or a little more heft and impact you know you care that little bit more about the character and believe that character a little bit more so uh, i thought although they were they were small pieces they were effective and they're a good contribution to the greater story right on right on agreed um all right let's do some of our our, our tried and true favorite questions uh who was your dude or your dude at eric as the guest you get to go first uh man i am not gonna say sanase um, I think I'm going to say uh, Sigmar. I, I liked that this was kicked off by him. I liked that. I think that showed a lot about a different side of his character as we talked about. Um, and I, I just appreciated that this, this was the setup pointing back to this story as a, as a, as a, as a thoughtful kind of next step for him in, in building a lot alliances and even friendships with the other, uh, the former Pantheon. So uh, I say go Sigmar. Go Sigmar. So you are on team Sigmar. All right, Davey, who was your uh, person? So 
I really wanted to pick the white dwarf because I was really enjoyed that bit of their how uh, that his his piece in the in the story. But uh, when we when we pick a guy, sometimes we pick a guy because it's you know this is this is someone that we enjoyed reading or, or liked or something like that. And sometimes you pick somebody that you can identify with. And so I'm going to pick uh, what I presume was a gaunt summoner on the edge. They had all this big crafty plan, timed everything out perfectly. Got the got his prey right there, and was about to you know just perfectly close the plan, and then accidentally uh, didn't hit pause on the on the playback of the video <laughs> fast enough, and it all came to pieces. Uh, and I can identify with that feeling. So you, you plan out your your uh, turn in underworlds perfectly, and uh, you make one big mistake at the end, and it all it all comes to pieces. <laughs> <laughs> and then and yet Zeech is up there just uh, doing the finger temple thing, like, "Yep, all according to plan, exactly the way I wanted it." Uh, and my person was actually uh, Bela's wife, so Mrs. Bela. Um, Mainly because, and I mean this in the nicest, I mean in the in the greatest way possible, because she reminds me of my wife a little bit. Um, uh, but no, she she had a great point. Like, it, how often do these great, powerful characters leave everything behind to go, you know, do this personal fulfillment, just leaving, you know, the the, the important people in their life behind, for lack of a better way to put it. Um, and I don't know. Oftentimes we focus on the the big, grandiose gestures, but like I don't know, she seems strong in her own way. Uh, having to deal with sort of the ramifications of, of being with this very powerful person and and dealing with the the mundane things on the day in and day out. So um, we well, you know when we talk about Age of Sigmar, we wonder what the farmers are doing. Uh, why don't we ever wonder what the the wives and husbands uh, back home are doing either? Um, so that's my person. Uh, so what what did we learn? What did you learn about the mortal realms that you didn't know uh, before? Hmm. Well, for me, there was uh, there's an interesting discussion when he's making the bargain with the gash. Uh, you know, the gash says you'll you'll be my service for 500 years and five days, uh, and and uh, Bela says, well, what happens after five centuries? He says, Nagash uh, says you shall pass from Shaiish, which for all its affinity with the beyond is but a mortal realm. You go into the unknown countries, past my borders, as all souls ultimately must. I was like, whoa, and I don't know if that's canon anymore. I there's, I apologize for not knowing the name. Somebody, somebody on our Discord uh, is always quick to mention that uh, black, black lottery fiction is not canon. I think Martin uh, says that a lot. Yeah, but I don't care. This is cool. I I, I really like this idea, and we've seen it in several, uh, several of the novels that there's this idea that there's something some. There's other beings. Um, I, mean, I think we saw it in Mirrored City. There's other places and other beings and stuff beyond uh, that even even the gods themselves are not familiar with, and uh, and that is echoed to some extent by Sigmar, who you know, and this is understandable as as a deity who was once a man uh, is uncertain whether there's a god above him. You know, is there is there are there gods for for we gods? You know, there there were at one point, and I don't know where I, I don't have a, he says, you know, it's this idea that he doesn't fully know where he sits in, in that uh, aspect of creation. I like that. Uh, I like that mystery. It's juicy, tasty, real juicy. Yeah. I think it's the same for me. I mean, I think when we first read it, it was the, the actual realm's edge, like the thing that uh, they tell you to focus on throughout the story. Right. Uh, and learning the, those physical things was, was pretty f- where I focused having read a second time. 
I think those were the things I picked up uh, on too was the the cyclical nature of it. The everything comes down to kind of base elements. Um, there's always somebody greater, bigger, better. Um, and if you waste your time worrying about that too much, you're going to miss the point. Um, but I mean, even the, the gods we have now in the, in the world that was, they weren't gods, um, except for, for Sigmar. Um, and before them, there was another cycle of, you know, personalities that were given immense power to make decisions for, for wherever, whoever they ruled over or whatever. But yeah, so it just, to me, it makes me think, okay, not necessarily who is the who might be above them and we got like dracothian um uh, who knew more about the realms than sigmar and brought him into the space um but even you know 20 years from now who are going to be the next gods kind of thing like 20 years in our life (laughs) (laughs) as the story progresses in the in game terms you know you know a couple millennium from now is there going to be another set of gods that overtake you know sigmar and the pantheon the former pantheon so like the titans um yeah you guys learned some good stuff uh just what i learned is just yet another glimpse into the age of myth um i i'd love to know more i'd love to spend more time there um it seems like it was just just seemed like it was nicer just like a better better time better place uh and so uh it makes me feel makes me feel better um do we have any recommendations for other stories having read this one and having read a lot more stories since then um do any other Black Library fiction um, resonate with you to this story? Um, feel like it fits into the same motif? Any thoughts there? The two that I had were um, uh, in Spear of Shadows and Hamilcar, where we get mortals talking to gods. Um, so mm. in Hamilcar, yeah, we've got yeah, yeah. Hamilcar is in in a place where he is visited by uh, Sigmar and gets you know, it makes a deal, um, in, uh, spear of shadows. Grungni is very much present in kind of working this team and, and bringing them together. Um, obviously, you know, in, um, in, uh, Nagash or undying King it, where, you know, Nagash is kind of stirring and his Mortarks are kind of communing with him or, you know, sending out. So there's some things like that, 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 that interaction showing where the gods and the, and the mortals, need each other uh those are a couple of other examples cool david you sound like you had some yeah so we i feel like we've actually recommended path to glory a couple times um but that that was another uh one that was not quite the age of myth it's right at the dawn of the age of chaos or or uh uh right as things are about to fall apart in one particular spot in the in the realm so you get a you get a little bit of a sense of of uh what uh what was lost with the age of myth uh, there so if that's something that appeals sure and uh for me another another story that deals with sort of the pontification on gods and w- w- what they think and how they feel etc cetera, etc cetera. um you can maybe check out soul, soul wars i think we spend a lot of time with nagash and sigmar uh in those ones and uh plus it's just a flat out good book um but don't expect us to cover it all right um <laughs> those are my questions you guys have any other questions because then let's close it out with a little review. Um, Eric, you're the guest. Uh, what'd you think of this? Think of the story. I'm going to give it uh, five out of five winds of magic uh, and, or five out of eight, I guess. No. Yeah. We're going <laughs> to go back to the fives. Uh, it was, it was a fantastic, uh, you know, use of my time. It was enjoying uh, every page had a little bit of uh, fun, you know, uh, piece that could, you could, 
probably dwell on and, and imagine further um, from the different places to the different conversations, et cetera. So um, I just really enjoyed this character from the first time we read him. And then, and then again, I felt like it was just as compelling uh, amount of a compelling amount of, of information and content and, and imagination packed into this small book. So awesome. Davey, what'd you think? Uh, I loved it. Uh, I loved it the first time I read it and I loved it the second time I read it. I was worried that I'd come back and it would not be, uh, it would not be as fun because I wasn't, uh, learning things new, but I, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it is, it is not super action packed, uh, but it is full of, of stuff that contributes or, or interacts with the underlying mythos of, uh, Age of Sigmar. So I will, I will give it, uh, I was going to start with uh, one pip down, but I, I can't think of a reason why I would do that. So I'm going to give it full marks. I'm going to give it uh, nine out of nine original uh, members of the uh, Pantheon. Nice. <laughs> cool. Uh, I agree wholeheartedly. Like it, it great story has a lot of great information, but it also was like, you know, um, like it was very like personal and at times as well. Plus I like the way it was sort of delivered. Um, like the, the the tale telling it was much more of a i don't know i don't want to say more of a story because the other books are stories but like this is uh, being regaled with a you know a, a a tall tale from from the past which I, I i really enjoyed and it was a change of pace from the way that a lot of um other black library stories are uh, delivered actually in a way it's very similar to hamilcar with when hamilcar tells you the story of what he had done before which might be why i like it so much <laughs> um, so a, a great little tale plus um, i think it ends up being fairly foundational it's a it's a snapshot um i think everybody should read it to, it informs a lot about the the moral realm so i will give it um 505 uh out of 505 uh, years after you die you're serving <laughs> a gash you 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 guys get the reference you Perfect. know what i'm trying to say Perfect. yeah nailed, nailed it, it. um <laughs> Any other thoughts before we get to the end? Because we will oh, close it out. All right. It is time for our reforging. Chat with us anytime about your thoughts on Twitter at The Mortal Realms. Davey, where can they find you on the internet? I'm at red underscore Zeke, or you can check out my main, uh, my other project, What the Hex. Awesome. I'm Aaron. You can find me at Dos Asos, and obviously all of us at, at the Story Phase. And Eric, where can they find you online? At Stone Monk Gamer on Twitter and at themortalrealms.com forward slash Discord, where we're chatting all the time. Oh, yeah, we are. Awesome. Uh, and you can find all our Moral Realms shows and content at themoralrealms.com. Uh,